BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Imagine your life is that of a lawman in the 19th century, tracking down the outlaws who've polluted the land of what was called the Indian Territory. Your tools of the trade consist of your trusty horse, maybe a dog, a wagon that holds supplies like bacon, coffee, and blankets, plus a trusty pistol or two, a rifle, maybe a shotgun. Your mission is to bring in a number of outlaws that range from horse thieves and bootleggers to bank robbers and murderers. Your posse may include one or two other armed guards and a cook. The terrain is dangerous and filled with all kinds of hazards rattlesnakes, mountain lions, bandits who have no interest in being taken in dead or alive, who will kill to stay free, no clean water, whether they can freeze you to death or bake and dehydrate you. The job wasn't an easy one that just anyone could do. And this tough job was even tougher for a man like Bass Reeves, who despite his incredible skills and reputation, was a black man and former slave, working in a very volatile period of racial history. He began his law enforcement career just a decade after the end of the Civil War. And then he would work during an era of forced Native American removal, an era when three races were all trying to figure out how to live together, but only one, white Europeans, decided what the rules of the cohabitation were going to be. Despite this, Reeves would thrive as a law enforcement officer, possibly, if not probably, making more money from his bounties than any of his peers. It said the Bass killed at least 14, maybe as many as 20 outlaws over a 30-year career. He was involved in a number of shootouts, sometimes going up against multiple armed men but he was never injured while arresting over 3,000 criminals. Maybe. He was possibly shot in a shootout with a gunslinger, but he won that shootout and basically just walked it off. And he might not have been trying to arrest that man. Sometimes shootouts could just spring up over a card game or an insult, real or perceived. He's often remembered as having almost superhuman strength, unparalleled shooting and horsemanship skills, and an unrivaled sense of duty, even tracking down and arresting his own son when his son was charged with murder. R.T. Burton, a history professor and the leading authority on Reeves, said of this Wild West legend, To me, Bass Reeves is the greatest frontier hero in American history, bar none. I don't know who you could compare him to. This guy walked in the valley of death every day for 32 years and came out alive. 
Recently, many, including Burton, have said Reeves was such an incredible lawman that he was perhaps the inspiration for the popular fictional character, the Lone Ranger. Is there any evidence for that? We'll investigate that claim today. And why has Reeves been largely forgotten by history? The short answer is because of his race. But now that's changing, as you'll see. We're talking about him today, and he might be having quite the pop culture resurgence coming around the corner. Today, we're going to learn about the life and times of one of the greatest and sadly most forgotten lawmen of the Old West, Bass Reeves, on another Wild West, yeah, 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 edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, episode 300 of the Cult of Curious. Holy shit, the 300th consecutive Monday of Time Suck. Started with no Nimrod, no Lucifina, no Bojangles, no Triple M, no recording studio, no Bad Magic Productions, no team, no Whipple even. Just a weirdo and a strange dream. And hot damn, has that dream come true and then some. Uh, Time Suck has taken me from being on the brink of possibly being done with a career in entertainment to having a more successful career than I did back when I was doing the Tonight Show and Comedy Central specials and all the shit I thought I had to do to find an audience. And to be able to do this uh, from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. What a ride, you beautiful bastards. Uh, the support so many of you have given me in this podcast has changed my life forever, changed my family's lives uh, in so many ways. I truly can't thank you enough. It's been so cool to be able to watch my wife, Lindsay, go from walking away from a successful career in film and TV costume department production work to doing the right thing for the kids, coming up here to Idaho, right? And then worrying how the hell that was going to work out to starting off as one of this area's rising realtor stars, then walking away again, from that to run Bad Magic Productions with me, be my scared-to-death co-host, wondering again how it was all going to work out, and then it did all work out. Uh, she certainly uh, never thought that moving from L.A. to CDA would open up the door to her having her own fans and being able to hire her mom to help with a scholarship foundation, among other wonderful things. Never thought we'd be able to raise, with your help, coming on uh, half a million dollars for a variety of wonderful charities. And despite not having any time the past two years to really focus on marketing uh, like I did the first few years, audience still growing, bigger than ever. More people coming out to stand-up shows than ever. Uh, to quote a running gag from Scared to Death, it's been wild, cool, and interesting. And feeling very grateful. So hail fucking Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable Jangles, glory be to Triple M. I uh, hope to continue to tell interesting stories and ways you find entertaining for many years to come. 100 episodes of Is We Dumb? Close anyway, you get it. Almost 150 episodes and counting the scared to death. Over 200 episodes of The Secret Suck, well over. And now this. May the gods of the suck keep the double tab of LSD... Actually, the two double tabs of LSD. I ingested a few minutes back from ruining today's show. I don't care if the walls bend. Uh, I don't care if I even get a little confused as to who I am or what I'm doing to some degree for the next several hours. I just want the screen in front of me with my notes to melt so much that it's impossible to read. Lindsay can help at the end, if need be, <laughs> like she did with the drunk as fuck suck. Uh, I just want to forget that I'm supposed to be doing a podcast. First, the drunk as fuck suck, 100th episode. Then the shroomed and doomed, 200th suck and now tripping in the wild west nice celebration and come on great excuse to uh drop some acid i'm I'm doing it for work and don't worry the kids are with their mom and stepdad today so when i see them next i'll just be the same weirdo uh that they're used to and Lindsay will make sure that i don't run out uh run out into traffic today and hopefully it works you never know (laughs) i think it's gonna work hopefully it doesn't work too well Fingers crossed. Uh, should kick in anywhere from 30 to 90 minutes into the show i I did right before we started recording uh don't expect me to get too weird in the first half uh, if that happens, oh boy, this recording is doomed and I might just have to record, uh, most of it again tomorrow. Uh, a couple quick announcements, then wild west. Here we come. 
How's this going to go? Uh, no tour dates to announce this episode. Bunch of fall dates up at dancummins.tv. Uh, but I will be uh, off for the summer. Thanks to everyone who came out to shows this past year. Hoping Davenport and Chicago were both fun this past weekend. Milwaukee was so much fun, especially Saturday night. Uh, even the late show with my front row uh, co-host, Christian. <laughs> if you were at that show, you know what I'm talking about. And if you are Christian, you know what? I hope you made it home safe, buddy. All good, dude. You seem like a really nice guy. Shit happens. Uh, got some killer new merch in the Bad Magic store this week. Been a while since we dropped a sticker dump. Got a bunch of those to choose from now. Albert's peanut butter restock, Bad Magician uh, sticker design, 1-800-BUSINESS, Strong Russian Pony Boy, a Space Lizard exclusive, and, and more. You can head to badmagicmerch.com and look through the sticker bin. Also, a cool new Colt keychain and button available. So check that out. And one last quick announcement. Bad Magic Charity of the Month is still the rainbowrailroad.org. We're donating $14,795 to this wonderful group. This group founded in 2006 assists LGBTQI plus people who face persecution because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, They help those whom are in danger by relocating them to a safer country or to a safer house. To learn more or to request help, please go to rainbowrailroad.org. Also able to donate $16.43 to the future Cummins Scholarship Fund that will be accepting applications from Bad Magicians in 2023. And now, mount up, regulators! Let's fucking ride. Bass Reeves has recently emerged from the shadows of stories of the Old West, almost exclusively white gunslingers, and has been elevated to the highest pantheon of Wild West lawmen. And for good reason. He's about as badass as badass can be. Unfortunately, as is the case for almost all legends of the Wild West, as we've learned time and time again here on Time Suck, solid info on the man is hard to come by. America's Wild West was an era of crazy-ass, totally true stories, also legend-building and myth-making, taking the real deeds of real gunslingers, then ratcheting up the reality, a little past truth, sometimes a lot past truth, uh, to the level of superhuman or supervillain lore to sell more newspapers and pulp fiction dime novels, etc., make better stories around the campfire. Uh, Biographer Art Burton wrote in his book, Black Gun, Silver Star, the best source out there on Reeves from what we can tell, that the research on Bass Reeves has not been easy to obtain. One of the first responses I received from a local town historical society in Oklahoma after inquiring about Reeves was, I'm sorry, we didn't keep black people's history. So what a shame. Hard enough to find good sources for white gunslingers, you know, that they did write about. Even harder to put together all the pieces of the Bass Reeves puzzle. Due to the discriminatory practices in the 20th century, not much African-American history was retained in the towns, uh, you know, after uh, the Wild West kind of was over, historians now think the Bass was not a racial anomaly that upwards of 25% of cowboys in the 19th century were black. We just uh, have rarely heard about them. That number definitely not would have, uh, I would have guessed growing up because all the old Westerns I watched as a kid, and I love Westerns, almost exclusively, you know, cast white dudes. Even a lot of the American Indians in the old movies and TV shows, also white dudes uh, or white ladies. I don't think that uh, any cowboys were black. Uh, that was an image that I just, you know, rarely, if ever saw. Luckily, Burton was able to track down a lot of good info on Reeves. Plenty for a great tale today. His work, uh, again, our best source. Uh, many of the sources we found, but not all, also list him as a source. So thank you, Art Burton. And why do I bring this all up? Well, I just want to let you know that the facts of today's suck aren't as consistently dependable as they are with many other episodes. Some of the action sequences Reeves was involved in read like a screenplay from a Hollywood Western. And that may because, uh, you know, because they were a bit scripted, a bit, a bit embellished. Good Wild West tales often end up being like uh, good fishing tales. 
You know that 16-inch rainbow trout that someone uh, took about 60 seconds to reel in after kind of putting up a fight becomes after a few years of a few dozen tellings, you know, a 24-inch rainbow. Took uh, 10, maybe even 20, 30 minutes to reel in. Damn near snapped your pole in half. Tipped over your boat, it fought so hard. Trophy fish. Uh, the fishing story is still based in facts, right? Someone catches a fish, but not quite as the story was told. Details exaggerated to make the story more compelling. Same shit with gunslinger tales. No one seems to doubt that Reeves did kill many a man while collecting bounties, that he was a badass. No one seems to doubt that he likely arrested more men than any other lawman of his era. The reality itself, truly awe-inspiring. That being said, exactly how he arrested men, exactly how many he killed, how many he arrested, likely some hyperbole thrown in there to make the stories more fun. Now that I've said all that, I'll turn it to bring it up again and just treat the source info going forward as factual. More fun just to enjoy the story that way. And what a story this is today. I wish, I wish I could morph into Sam Elliott to narrate this tale. My favorite voice for Westerns. Bass Reeves. Now that was a man. They don't make him like that anymore. Not sure they made him that way before. Pull a stool up to the bar, grab a tall drink, and hear a tale taller than any you ever did hear before. We'll start with just a bit of background info on the Cowboys, the Indian Territory. Then we'll address the new theory that Reeves was actually the inspiration for the popular fictional character known as the Lone Ranger. From there, we'll get to know Reeves and his legendary deeds through the lens of our fun as shit. Planking and planking! Time suck timeline. So what region Reeves uh, was re- so what region was Reeves responsible for policing? Indian Territory. About the Indian Territory, established in 1819, it was said, There is no law west of St. Louis. And no God west of Fort Smith. That's a great fucking line. Someone was proud of themselves when they came up with that one. Again, I can I can hear Sam Elliott saying that one. There's no law west of St. Louis or no God west of Fort Smith. Uh, during the late 19th century, no area in the U.S. was a haven and a refuge for criminals quite like the Indian Territory was. The land that roughly would later become Oklahoma. Most of eastern Oklahoma still belongs to various tribes. The Indian Territory and the Indian Territories are terms that can be a little confusing. They generally describe what was an evolving land area set aside by the U.S. government for the relocation of Native Americans who held aboriginal title to the land as a sovereign independent state. In general, the tribes ceded land they occupied in exchange for new land grants in present-day Oklahoma in 1803. Prior to May 2nd, 1890, the territory contained uh, 44,154,240 acres or almost uh, 69,000 square miles. A lot of land for a small group of government agents to try and establish some law and order in. The Indian Territory was originally the domain of the so-called five civilized tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole. We talked about this in the Trail of Tears Suck, episode 246, in much more depth than I'll do here today. There wasn't an official count of the area's population until 1890 when it was estimated that there was something like 180,000 natives living there. 1890 was the year the Oklahoma Territory was established. It comprised the western half of present-day Oklahoma State. A whole bunch of treaties were violated to make that happen. Native land was once again opened up to settlement for American citizens. Because of this, by 1900, the area's population more than doubled to 391,960 people of uh, all races. And as uh, you can you know, uh, imagine, tension in the area more than doubled as well. A lot of people looking to establish themselves as new landowners coming into conflict with a lot of people whose land was just stolen. Again, not the ideal way for new neighbors to introduce themselves into the neighborhood. 
A lot of violent crime ensued. And it got a lot trickier when it came to who should be enforcing the laws that's rapidly changing and developing land. Especially in what's now a eastern Oklahoma state, which was still Indian territory after 1890. Tribes in the territory had their uh, own highly regarded police force called Light Horse Police, but treaties prohibited them from arresting any criminals who weren't citizens of their Indian nations. You can see how this created a less than ideal situation for both law-abiding citizens and law enforcement. I can't believe no one anticipated that being a, a wee bit of a problem. But, uh, but Senator, uh, if we are not going to police the Indian territory and also won't let tribal law enforcement arrest anyone not from the tribe residing there, will that not allow non-tribal criminals to commit any and all crimes they want? And then I reckon just hide out in that territory and evade capture. Poppycock, make clear your name rambling, son. Apologies, Senator. Uh, I thought I laid out the problem uh, pretty concisely. Allow me to attempt to convey my issue again. I feel we should allow tribal police to arrest non-tribal criminals on their own land. Otherwise, are we not encouraging outlaws to raise hell there? Or at least hide there once they've raised hell on U.S. soil? Boulder Dash, speak plainly, son. I simply cannot understand what you take issue with. Oh, for fuck's sake, Senator, the shit you are doing is really fucking stupid, you dumb prick. A lot of people are going to be needlessly hurt and property needlessly damaged and or stolen because criminals will be given a free fucking pass in this scenario to fuck shit up on the reservations or at least hide there after fucking shit up elsewhere. Thanks to you and other Capitol Hill dickweeds. Is that clear enough, you ignorant twat? I will not be spoken to in that manner, son. Take your confusing words and your filthy tongue out of my present post-haste. Obviously, the situation enticed some of the worst criminals in all the West to take up residence in uh, Indian Territory. Pretty fucking sweet gig for them. Uh, the U.S. Attorney General in 1888 officially estimated that of 20,000 white persons uh, residing in Indian Territory at that time, only 5,000 <laughs> were law-abiding. That's a, that's a lot of outlaws of some kind or another. Clearly, there was a need for strong men like Bass Reeves. The jurisdiction of this territory fell to the U.S. Court for Western Arkansas, located at Fort Smith. That place, uh, from the quote, where, where God's dominion stopped. Fort Smith, a frontier town, was located on the eastern border of Indian Territory. Uh, never been there, but did some searching online, and it looks cute as shit. Bigger than I expected. About 280,000 people in the metro area now. Uh, about 115 miles east of Tulsa. Wee bit smaller back in Reeves' day. Just a few thousand when he first moved there, which was actually pretty big for a frontier town. The court there was the largest federal court in uh, U.S. history, uh, covering over 75,000 square miles. In 1875, Judge Isaac C. Parker was given the difficult task of cleaning up the territory by President Ulysses Grant. He would later become known as the Hanging Judge. He'd have 85 men sentenced to death. Uh, Some sources say 160, sorry, 88 men. Some sources say 160. About 79 of them would hang. I think 79, but you know, sources. Uh, He'd also be a great personal friend to Bass Reeves. Parker authorized the hiring of 200 deputy U.S. marshals to sweep over the territory and arrest the felons and fugitives that he would judge in court. The Fort Smith Federal Court never hired that many deputies to work, though. Authorized, but never implemented. uh, Usually only between 20 and 30 deputies at any one time. It was a very dangerous job and uh, not a lot of widespread interest for it. Fort Smith deputies, uh, you know, brave or crazy enough to take the position, would be tasked with arresting the black and white men of the Indian Territory or any native that killed a black or white man in the region. And one of the first of the deputies hired by Judge Parker's court was Bass motherfucking Reeves, one of the first African-American lawmen in U.S. history, often uh, said as the uh, first west of the Mississippi. Uh, He'd proved to be their best hire. He'd arrest so many men with little to no help in many cases, seemed so impervious to harm, borderline superhuman, that recently some have begun to uh, think he was the real-life 
Lone Ranger. So let's look into that claim. Right after a quick bonus little sponsor break, I am contractually obligated to mention when I mention the Lone Ranger, since they both use the same portion of the William Tell Overture for their theme music. Today's episode of Time Suck is brought to you by Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium Tax Shop and Saddlery. Howdy, partners and ponies. It's here's your good buddy, Tom Anderson, a.k.a. Captain Whiskerhorn. Your trusted source of sexy bits and bridles, harnesses, halters, hooves, masks, anal plug tails, and more for the Quad State area for the past 20 years. In honor of today's subject, today only, get 20% off all pony play gear, including carrot balls, spurs, submission whips, hobbles, collars, polos, stud chains, and tongue ties. And also, get 50% off the newest addition to the store, the Bass Reeves Ass Blaster. It's big, it's strong, and it takes no shit from anyone but also isn't afraid of getting up into anyone's shit. If you know what I mean, and I think you do. The Bass Reeves Ass Blaster demands justice. Your butt's an outlaw, and it will be punished. You've been sentenced to an anal orgasm. You've been sentenced to put the wild in the West. If there's only room for one role-play store, then you can bet your fake hide it's going to be Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium Tax Shop and Saddlery. Hi-oh, Away! So there's that, you know, sorry, that was probably really confusing to a lot of you. Haven't really had them on as a sponsor for quite, uh, quite some time, probably over a year. They're one of my favorites. So back to our actual <laughs> narrative now was Bass Reeves. It's getting this weird and nothing's even kicked in yet. Uh, was Bass Reeves the inspiration for the popular uh, fictional character known as the Lone Ranger? If you put Bass Reeves into the old Google machine, uh, this association is one of the first things to pop up. CNN has a headline from 2013 that reads, was an African-American cop, the real Lone Ranger. Uh, History.com has a 2018 headline that reads similarly, was the real Lone Ranger a black man? There's a handful of other articles and documentaries asking the same question. To try and answer it, let's first get an idea of the Lone Ranger character. Lone Ranger was a fictional mass renegade lawman in the American West, former Texas Ranger, created for American radio and TV programs, books, films, and comics. Uh, The basic story of the Lone Ranger is this. The main character, Ranger John Reed, was born in 1850, and was the sole survivor of a group of six Texas Rangers who were ambushed by outlaws who killed the other five Rangers, including his older brother, Daniel. Gotta give our tortured hero a haunted backstory, just like Batman. Another masked hero who was conceptualized six years after the birth of Lone Ranger, uh, Batman was. Numerous masked heroes were popping up in the early 20th century media. A Native American man, Tonto, found Reed and then nursed him back to health. In the original story, Tonto actually breastfed Reed back to health. But then that story was quickly changed because it outraged and disgusted uh, the general uh, population, general public. It was customary, though, in certain tribes for men to breastfeed both the young and the sick. Men's nipples do have the proper internal equipment needed for milk production. And Tonto and his people had figured out how to activate those hormones. The hormones needed to spark that equipment into life-giving, tasty action. Yes, I said tasty. Male breast milk, typically about 50% sweeter than female breast milk. Not sure why we men don't still uh, work on producing our sweet, sweet man titty milk. If men were still producing breast milk today, maybe the current baby, lift form- uh, baby formula shortage, you know, wouldn't even matter. Dudes could just step in, provide all the extra baby food our society needs. It's a shame. It's a real tough titty shame. And almost none of that's true. Tonto, of course, did not breastfeed the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I wish. It's a pretty funny origin story. Uh, men do have the equipment, but naturally we just, you know, we'll never start just kicking out milk. Um, Tonto did nurse the Lone Ranger back to health, though. Fed him a steady diet of peanut butter, hot apple cider, showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. 
will never be truly safe from Albert Fish. Uh, sorry, he did nurse him back to health. And then once healthy, uh, Reed then donned a black mask made from his dead brother's vest. I didn't know that. Mounted his stallion, sarsaparilla, I mean, silver. And roamed the West as a lone ranger to aid those in need to fight evil and to establish justice. As one might expect, cowboy shenanigans ensued weekly. The creators of the character were George W. Trendle, manager of WXYZ radio station in Detroit, Michigan, and writer Fran Stryker. Fran also created the Green Hornet, for you comic fans. A uh, few people bothered to ever review George W. Trendle's production legal files to verify the true origin of the Lone Ranger, which is why future claims about Reeves and others have been rarely debunked academically. Lone Ranger serialized radio show first aired locally in Detroit on January 31st, 1933. By the end of the decade, the radio program was wildly popular, carried by more than 400 American stations. Popular line from the show became part of the American lexicon as kids around the nation for generations, including mine, would yell, hi Silver! Away! And the show's theme song, right? The fourth movement from uh, Jalakino Rossini's William Tell Overture uh, would become a popular jingle to many younglings across the nation. Lone Ranger's first movie serial would appear in 1938. 1949, television version of the radio show debuted on ABC. Although the radio program ended in 1954 and the TV show ended in 1957, the Lone Ranger's adventures continued on in various forms. Uh, There was a movie in the 60s, uh, plus cinema remakes, The Legend of the Lone Ranger in 1981, and The Lone Ranger in 2013 with the very Caucasian Johnny Depp playing his uh, controversial role as Native American Tonto. Depp has uh, obviously had a lot more to worry about recently than playing Tonto. What a strange soap opera his recent defamation trial was. Uh, in a nutshell, the Lone Ranger has always been a white-masked former Texas Ranger with an outstanding horse and, uh, you know, gun skills and a revenge story fueling his passion for vigilante justice. Rides a white horse named Silver, hands out silver bullets, hangs out with his native buddy Tonto, fighting crime like the kind of Batman and Robin of the Old West. So where did the idea of Bass Reeves, who worked primarily in pre-Oklahoma, being the inspiration for the Lone Ranger initially come from? It originated in that 2006 Reeves biography we referenced earlier, the one written by historian Art T. Burton, Black Gun Silver Star. In the book, Burton wrote, Bass Reeves is the closest real person to resemble the Lone Ranger. Burton documents that Reeves' career as a lawman was widely known, celebrated in his time, and cites various similarities between Reeves and the Lone Ranger. Among the most popular of the similarities, you know, they uh, both took to wearing disguises to find their targets. With Lone Ranger wearing a full-on black mask, Reeves dressing up in disguises, uh, you know, like being a farmhand or being a, a tramp to catch his targets. Also noted that both Reeves and the Lone Ranger had Native American companions and or guides while on the trail of some of the baddies. Burton additionally points out that they both shared a love for white or gray horses, giving out silver keepsakes, and of course, both were described as badasses with firearms and elite horsemen. However, a lot of these claims linking Reeves to the Lone Ranger fall apart under just a little scrutiny. It was common practice of U.S. Marshals working in Indian territories to have native assistants, and it was not uncommon for lawmen to wear disguises to fool targets. Those characteristics definitely not unique to Bass Reeves. Another widespread practice of the era was using silver dollars as payments or tributes. Bass certainly did that, as did many others. So again, this does not point to Reeves. Lone Ranger gave out silver bullets, uh, which there was no record of Reeves doing. Critics also point out that Bass Reeves was not a Texas Ranger nor did he spend his time working much of the Texas beat until towards the end of his career. Uh, Biographer Burton also mentioned that both Reeves and Lone Ranger rode light-colored horses. Seems like a pretty weak association, since again, a lot of lawmen uh, undoubtedly also rode light-colored horses. But these are the claims that built the myth. Another possible connection, though it's uh, another of Burton's admitted reaches, is that the original story of the Lone Ranger began on the radio in Detroit. Many of the fugitives arrested by Bass Reeves and later convicted at Fort Smith, Arkansas, 
were sent to the Detroit House of Corrections in Michigan. Perhaps they told some tales that became part of local lore that reached the character's creators. Or, you know, just all coincidence. So was Bass Reeves the real Lone Ranger or not? Uh, Reeves is an excellent choice to be the inspiration for a powerful character like the Lone Ranger, but no, probably not true. Uh, Certainly no conclusive evidence saying it is true. Art Burton says, I doubt we would be able to prove conclusively that Reeves is the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. We can, however, say unequivocally that Bass Reeves is the closest real person to resemble the fictional Lone Ranger on the American Western frontier in the 19th century. So fair. On that point, I agree with him. Uh, Nine years later, when asked about this uh, claim uh, back in 2006, Burton wrote, in regards to Bass Reeves being the inspiration for the Lone Ranger fictional character, I never said that it was definitive. Just coincidental similarities. So who was the Lone Ranger inspired by? We don't know. Creators never made it clear, and they're long dead now. Didn't necessarily ever come from one person, probably an amalgamation of several real people with a bunch of imagination thrown in. Some suggest the inspiration for the Lone Ranger likely came from already established characters like Zorro, Robin Hood, combined with the already popular uh, dime novels of the Wild West. Right, Zorro created in 1919, popular in 1933. Robin Hood legends go back to the 13th century, but uh, also a little resurgence in the early 20th century. Fictional tales of Robin Hood, popular in 1933. All right, with the Lone Ranger Bass Reeves connections cleared up, now as much as we can clear it up, let's tell Reeves a story. He certainly doesn't need a Lone Ranger association for his story to be fucking incredible. His story is more interesting uh, than the Lone Rangers, right? His story is real, most of it anyways. He was an actual living legend one time and forever a Wild Wild West legend since his death. So let's get to know this legend, the legend of Bass Reeves with this week's Time Suck Timeline right after our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour, but... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. 
And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Hope you heard some appealing deals. Please use our landing codes to take advantage of them. Help you save money helps us keep sponsors. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Once upon a time, a child born into slavery was given the name of Bass, probably sometime in July of 1838 in Crawford County, northwestern Arkansas. Various census data and other sources have Bass being born in Texas and in different years. Records for slaves and people of color were barely kept, and much of the information about him comes from oral stories told by individuals and families in rural Oklahoma. Bass had a sister named Jane Reeves. That seems certain. Uh, appears that Bass was named after his grandfather, Bass Washington, whose name appeared on Bass's uh, mother's death certificate. Bass and his mom, Paralee Stewart, no one knows who his father was, were owned by Arkansas farmer and uh, state legislator William Steele Reeves. Oh, Billy Steele! Pretty sick name. Sounds like the name of an 80s porn star. (laughs) Billy Steele! Tonight on the Spice Channel, Billy Steele, Christy Canyon, Nina Hartley, and Ass Reeves star in The Legend of the Bone Ranger. 
Hi-yo butt slaps, big bushes, and teased out feathered bangs away. Me. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Bass wouldn't take the surname of Reeves until later as an adult, the name of his slave master's family. As a child, Bass worked alongside his parents as a water boy, later a field hand. While carrying out his duties as a water boy, it said that Bass caused concern for his mom because he spent quite a bit of his time singing songs about guns, rifles, butcher knives, robberies, killings, his little ditties he made up. She was worried he was going to turn out to be an outlaw. Maybe he's on that path and she steered him towards lawman instead. Slave master William S. Reeves was born uh, in Pendleton District, South Carolina, March 9th, 1794, to parents who had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland. He was of English ancestry, even had some royal blood, several lords in his family line. He was reared in Nashville, Tennessee by an uncle, served in the War of 1812 and in the Creek Indian War as well. And old Billy, 12 inches of steel, uh, represented Hickman County in the Tennessee legislature and later represented Crawford County in the Arkansas legislature. When Bass was around eight years old, around 1845 or 1846, the William S. Reeves family, including eight of 12 children, some in-laws and six slaves, packed up 30 covered wagons and moved to northern Texas, just across the border from Choctaw and Chickasaw nations in the Indian Territory. They settled in the Preston District of Grayson County, northwest of the city of Sherman, as a member of Peter's Colony. Peter's Colony, uh, a series of land grants handed out to some of North Texas's first settlers, who were U.S. citizens. Uh, Parts of 26 different counties in Texas today used to be part of Peter's Colony. Uh, Thank God we don't have to uh, move in big covered wagons anymore. Move to a place with no electricity, no running water, no hospital, no AC, etc., etc. As Bass got older, along with his uh, water boy duties, he tended to his master's mules and horses. His way with animals then led to his becoming a blacksmith's helper. Because he was a quick learner and swift with his work at the forge, as well as eager to take on additional duties... The blacksmith never grumbled when Bass spent more time with the master's prized horses. And as the legend uh, goes, the horses thrived under his attention. Bass was eventually selected as his master's companion, a position of some authority among his fellow slaves at some point in his childhood. His mom, Para Lee, was pleased because now each member of her family was an upper servant able to eat at the so-called house table. Bass's sister, Jane, had been working inside the house for years. Her needlework was exceptional. Para Lee herself had long been her mistress's uh, personal attendant and the household favorite. She sang on most occasions when uh, her master wanted to be entertained. So weird. Uh, Bass was soon put into the ownership of William's son, George Robertson Reeves. George Reeves, the fifth of 12 kids, born January 3rd, 1826 in Hickman, Tennessee. Bass, 11 when he was born. George, like his father, would go on to be a public servant. He acted as a tax collector in 1848, was sheriff of Grayson County from 1850 to 1854. 1855, George was elected to the Texas House of Representatives from Grayson County, remained a legislator legislator until the American Civil War changed everything. Stories have Bass accompanying George nearly everywhere, serving as a valet, bodyguard, coachman, butler, overall personal assistant. While working for George, he asked to learn to uh, read so he could study the Bible. But like many other slaves at the time, his request was denied, but he was permitted to learn how to get really good with the gun. And that's fucking weird. Weird priorities. I reckon we don't want you learning to read, Bass. Might start uh, getting big ideas. Be wanting to overthrow your slave masters and whatnot. How about you take this rifle out to the field and get real, real handy with it instead? I see no harm coming from that. It's almost like none of this shit makes sense. Uh, As a young man, Bass quickly became adept with a variety of weapons, especially pistols and rifles. He was ambidextrous. His speed and accuracy would become legendary. The guns he used when he was a slave were simple and plain, no silver nickel-plated pistols with ivory or pearl handles, no fancy rifles of any type. And then once he won his freedom and became a noted lawman, he kept his, he kept his weaponry simple. He was never flashy, never felt the need to own an expensive weapon. 
right? They weren't something for him to show off. They were tools of his trade. No different than a carpenter's hammer or a farmer's plow. He preferred his firearms to be plain, ordinary, inconspicuous. And of course, to shoot true. Uh, he practiced a lot, got, uh, you know, real good, real fast. Uh, his slave master quickly entered him into a number of shooting competitions. He would win a number of turkey shoots, a bunch of other local shooting contests, uh, you know, against uh, all comers, black or white. A turkey shoot in the Seminole Nation consisted of a turkey uh, upside down on a clothesline. And then a rider with a rifle would attempt to shoot the head off this fucking turkey while galloping at full speed down the line. I don't know. I, I don't know why these things aren't still around. Right? right? Why don't we have those competitions anymore? Maybe because of animal cruelty. Maybe PETA taking the fun out of torturing upside down turkeys to death. Uh, Reeves speed with the pistol has been likened to that of a Methodist preacher reaching for a platter of fried chicken during Sunday dinner at a deacon's house. Sure and true with no wasted motion. And that is a funny way to describe something. I've not been to a lot of dinners uh, with Methodist, uh, Methodist preachers and deacons, so I don't know how accurate that is. Uh, local legends in and around Indian territory describe Reeves' proficiency as a marksman in lots of colorful ways. One recorded sentiment said that Reeves could shoot the left hind leg off a contented fly sitting on a mule's ear at 100 yards and never ruffle a hair. <laughs> That's not like some shit, some goofy side character saying Western. I love that stuff. Could he shoot? Hell. I reckon he could blast off a running field mouse's tail at a hundred yards on a windy day during a thunderstorm while standing on an anthill dancing around lightning strikes. Could he shoot? Man could shoot all three bowling pins out of the air before they returned to a juggler's hands two miles out during a solar eclipse while standing one-legged on horseback playing the star-spangled banner on an air banjo behind his back. Bang, 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 bang. Blink, 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 tank, 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 tank. Could he shoot? Are you shitting me? Man can pew pew the cavity out of a bandit's mouth 17 miles away while doing a handstand in the eye of a tornado while making the meanest venison stew you ever did taste with his feet while reciting Shakespeare, while impregnating two different women and one man at the same time. Yeah, he can shoot. The acid is definitely kicking in. Uh, Reeves himself, it's, it's a good trip so far. Uh, this is making this uh, I'm more fascinated in the subject matter than ever. I'm just uh, watching you smile more and more. Me and Lindsay are, <laughs> are enjoying it out here. Yeah. Things are, <laughs> things are moving in a good way right now. Good hat, cowboy. Oh, thank you. I'm, just, I'm a space cowboy. I'm just a space cowboy telling a space cowboy show. Uh, Reeves himself would claim he was only fair with the rifle, but the accounts of him consistently portray him as a legendary marksman. One more, uh, more account has him stumbling upon a steer being drugged down by a, a pack of six wolves. And from his moving horse, he took down all six wolves with just eight shots. All right. In many sources, it said that he won the region's shooting competition so often that finally uh, people asked his uh, uh, slave master to not enter him in any more competitions to give someone else a chance. Besides his skill with weapons and his talent with horses, he had a few other almost comic book character-like traits. According to legends, strong as fuck. Possessing what the stories describe as superhuman strength. He was certainly big for his era, with most accounts having him standing at perhaps 6'2" weighing about 180 pounds when the average man at that time stood about 5'1 and was about 95 pounds. <laughs> Just JK. Uh, average guy in America during the Civil War is thought to have been about 5'8, weighed a buck 40. I love imagining a typical dude being 5'1 and under 100 pounds though. If I get into a time machine, I could fucking dominate. I could take my big cowboy hat back there, you know? Uh, Reeves' big handlebar mustache was always on point, became his signature look. Not, not, why, uh, not sure why. Those mustaches add intimidation points on the right kind of person, but they do. Clean-shaven Sam Elliott, not going to command nearly the same respect as a mustachioed Sam Elliott in a Western. Elliott is great, by the way, in 1883, uh, that uh, Yellowstone spinoff. 
Episode three delivers one of my favorite Wild West tough guy speeches to a man he has a gun pointed at who is trying to uh, cause a wagon train mutiny. During the war, we fought at a battle, a place called the Wilderness, because there was nothing around but the Wilderness. I fired my rifle so many times it melted, just drooped like rotten fruit. So I killed with my pistol. And when I ran out of bullets, I killed with my sword. And when my sword broke, I killed with my boots and bare hands. When the battle was over and I looked behind me, the wilderness was gone. Not a tree left standing. Chopped down chest high by bullets. We killed 5,000 men that day. When I say killing you means nothing to me, I mean it. Killing you means nothing. I can imagine Bass Reeves saying shit like that to guys. And I don't like to get that intense right now. It freaks me out. Uh, one story of Bass's strength came while he was riding in the southern portion of Chickasaw Nation. Reeves came upon uh, some cowboys attempting to extract a full-grown steer from one of the bogs along Mud Creek, which emptied into the Red River. Cowboys had roped the steer, were attempting to drag it back to solid ground using their horses. Several ropes had apparently broken under the strain. The steer was huge. It was buried so deep in the bog that only its head and upper back were visible. Its eyes rolled back into its head. Neck had been pulled and stretched until its tongue lolled out of its mouth into the mud and slime of the bog. Windpipe so restricted by the ropes that its breath only an occasional labored, rasping wheeze. Damn near dead when Reeves showed up. In fact, the cowboys were almost ready to give him up as lost. They were a few minutes from riding off, leaving the steer where they found him, with a bullet in his brain to soothe their consciences. Reeves rode up, watched him struggle for a few minutes, then legend goes that he gave off a bit of a grumble, then stripped off all his clothes, and without a word to the others, he made his way through the bog to the dying animal. And then he mounted that motherfucker and he fucked the shit out of it. By the time he was done, the steer was dead. And then he used his hard dick to lift it out of the mud place it on a drier patch of dirt so its owners could butcher it up for meat and he walked back to his horse he kind of springboarded he like pole vaulted back onto his horse with his wiener and he hung off his rifle his rifle off his hard penis and rode away that's crazy talk uh no real story uh, after wading through the bog to this poor steer he yanked off all the ropes which allowed the animal to breathe and then grabbing the steer by the horns began to lift and pull talking to it in a low soothing steady voice slowly he helped lift a huge animal i mean they're roughly a thousand pounds or more uh, from the suction of the bog. Reeves then waded out of the mud, wiped himself off as clean as he could with the uh, flat of his hands, stuffed his clothes into his saddle bags, and then mounted his horse, rode off stark naked. That part is part of the story. Uh, while mumbling something about damn dumb cowboys. Said he rode off without saying a word to any of the dumbstruck cowboys, uh, even though he'd been there for almost a full hour. Even the real story is pretty weird. Uh, now let's get back into some dates. April 12th, 1861, America is... Uh, torn down the Mason-Dixon line in north and south, brother against brother, largely over the practice of slavery, the American Civil War has begun. If you want to hear our suck on the Civil War, it's episode 188. November of 1901, Bass would give an interview to the Muskogee newspaper, and he would talk about his life during the war. He said he was George Reeves' body servant, accompanied him into uh, battles during the Civil War. Colonel Reeves was a member of the 11th Te Texas Cavalry Regiment under the command of Colonel William G. Young. Bass said they were together in the battles of uh, Chickamauga, and Missionary Ridge. Interestingly, the article states that uh, later they were in the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas, where Reeves said he saw Texas hero General Ben McCullough killed, but in fact, Pea Ridge was fought before Chickamauga and Missionary Ridge. But also, he's 63 when he's giving this interview, talking about shit that happened over, you know, fucking 40 years before. So he got the order of the battle switched up, right? So what? Uh, the story given by Reeves cannot be verified because records were not kept concerning body servants of Confederate officers and Colonel George Reeves would not mention Bass in his war memoirs later. Not surprised he didn't mention him though, considering uh, how the two will split apart from one another. We'll get into that shortly. If Bass did accompany George for a good portion of the war, God knows how many total skirmishes he ended up in, how many men he may have killed. 
The 11th Regiment of the Texas Cavalry was involved in approximately 150 battles and skirmishes. One report said that as many as 500 men fought and less than 50 returned home at the end of the war. Civil War battles might be where Bass first became a hard and fearless legend. One of those uh, many battles was the Battle of Chustenlaw. Chustenlaw fought on December 26, 1861 in what is now Osage Nation. Uh, though a relatively early battle in the war, it was the last battle in which the Indians loyal to the Union under the leadership of the Creek chief, Opethliahola, also known as Gouge, put up a fight. They were crushed by the Confederate troops, mostly Texans and Confederate uh, natives. Uh, the Loyalist Indians had put up an excellent fight in two earlier engagements. These Indians were primarily Creek, Seminoles, and African Americans. After this battle, Chief uh, Opethliahola and his native and black warriors were forced to flee in disarray from the Indian territory into Kansas, only to face freezing and starving. Uh, Paul Brady, Bass's great nephew, states that Bass found home around, his, around this time as a fugitive slave with the full-blood Creek and Seminole Indians of the Indian territory. As such, he was with Chief uh, Opethliahola at the Battle of Chustenlaw, where the chief advised Bass to stay in the Northern Cherokee Nation and fight. In the Cherokee Nation, there was a sect called the uh, Katua, Katua who were abolitionists, also called Pins. The Pins carried on a guerrilla war against the Confederates in the territory throughout the duration of the Civil War and inflicted heavy damage. And Bass Reeves may have joined up with this group after the Battle of Chustin Law or could have uh, left his master after the Battle of Pea Ridge. Uh, records vary and are a bit unclear. A number of Cherokees would leave the Confederacy not long after Pea Ridge and join the Union cause in July of 1862. Maybe Bass joined with them or at least left when they left. Uh, interesting side note about the Battle of Pea Ridge. Wild Bill Hickok! Famous gunfighter, also at Pea Ridge, serving as a Union scout. No account of, uh, you know, Wild Bill and Bass Reeves meeting, but maybe, maybe they chatted about shooting techniques or something. Uh, regardless, during this period that Bass was done being a slave to George, or anyone for that matter, according to Bass Reeves' daughter, Alice Spawn, uh, Bass parted company with his master over an altercation during a card game. Though uh, body servants became on many occasions their master's best friends and confidants, in this case, young Reeves got into a heated argument that led to a physical fight, it led to him giving his master a fucking ass whooping. He, quote, laid him out cold with his fist and then made a run for the Indian Territory north across the Red River. Right? Again, Sam Elliott pops in. After shining up Billy Steele's son in the saloon, inflicting a grievance that could never be forgiven nor forgotten, Bass was a man without a country. He could no longer dare stay in the South. He knew no Union man in the North. While he was friendly with the tribes, he was a member of none. He had only his cunning and his guns for companions in a now constant battle against the ever-present threat of death. I feel like that was death. Yeah, I really hit that last part. Uh, Reeves knew that his attack George, uh, uh, that his attack on George Reeves you know, could end in his death. Uh, it said that everyone who knew anything about this and might have been involved refused to talk because they were probably worried about uh, Bass getting hanged for something they'd say. Exactly what Bass Reeves did during the Civil War shortly after all this remains uncertain. It seems that he hid out, laid low for a while. On his own, said he learned to lay the land in the Indian Territory like a cook knows his kitchen. And he learned to speak Muscogee, language of the Creeks and Seminoles, and converse reasonably well in the languages of the other five civilized tribes, excuse me, that inhabited Indian territory. All skills that would later make him a legendary deputy marshal. While Reeves was learning some skills that would help him track down a few thousand criminals in Indian territory years later, the nation around him was changing forever. The Emancipation Proclamation, or Proclamation 95, was a presidential proclamation and executive order issued by U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. I've heard of him. September 22nd, 1862, during the Civil War. It read, All persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free, 
and the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Uh, the do no acts or, uh, you know, to repress such persons, uh, sure as shit didn't uh, end up holding true. But the freedom part, more or less been followed through on. Uh, January 1st, 1863, the proclamation changed the legal status under federal law of more than three and a half million enslaved African-Americans in the secessionist Confederate states from enslaved to free. Now, as soon as the slave escaped the control of the Confederate government, either by running away across Union lines or through the advance of federal troops, that person was permanently free. The American Civil War period, among the least clear parts of Reeves' life, uh, one man interviewed about Reeves years after the war claimed that after Bass escaped, uh, he fought for the, for the North and became a sergeant in the Union Army during the Civil War. It's possible. Uh, there were numerous African-Americans enlisted who served uh, with the Union's 1st Indian Home Guard Regiment, which was composed mostly of Seminole and Creek Indians and freed men. Many blacks in the regiment served as non-commissioned officers, namely sergeants. Countless black sergeants, uh, you know, went only by Indian names on the roster. So possible that one of those men, you know, was Bass Reeves, but just no way to be certain. Uh, the American Civil War ended April 9th, 1865. After the war, 1866, Bass's former master, George Reeves, whose ass he whooped, was elected again by Grayson County voters to the Texas State Legislature. Uh, George will remain in that body until the time of his death, September 5th, 1882. Weird death. Dude died of rabies. Got bit by a rabid dog when he tried to keep that dog away from some kids. I forget that people used to die of rabies, like in this country. What a horrible way to go. Final symptoms that often uh, occur over the last few days of your life with untreated rabies are horrific. Uh, hyperactivity, excitable behavior, fear of water, sometimes even fear of uh, drafts or fresh air. You know, you lose your fucking mind. Uh, death occurs after a few days due to cardiorespiratory arrest. P- uh, poor Reeves was locked in a wooden shed um, padded with mattresses to protect him from the potential self-inflicted violent tendencies associated with the last days of this disease. He's 56. The vaccine for rabies developed just a few years after his death. Oh man, he's close. Reconnecting with Bass now, following the Civil War. Uh, Somewhere in the late 1860s, he married Nellie, a.k.a. Jenny, maidenly last name not known, young Texan, born in 1840, and they would go on to have 10 kids together. Five boys and five girls. Dude was good with the gun and shot well in the bedroom too, apparently. Uh, some sources have 11 kids in the Reeves family. Now a free man, Reeves moved with his new family to Van Buren, Arkansas, a town that borders Fort Smith, had about 1,000 people at this time where he bought a small farm uh, right near the Indian Territory border. Reeves' estate valued at around 100 bucks that time. Probably, probably be worth a little bit more now. Uh, his house was across the street from the tracks of the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad that ran alongside the Arkansas River. Town newspaper Van Buren later reported that Reeves built a very nice cottage on the site of his original dwelling. His daughter, Alice, stated that Bass built this particular home himself, the first by uh, a black uh, family in Van Buren proper. She called the house with its eight rooms a showplace. Said they had a big barn with spotless stalls and well-tended horses. Doesn't seem this property exists anymore. Can't find an address for it anywhere. So much info, you know, lost for too many years thanks to almost no record keeping done for black residents. Uh, Van Buren now part of the Fort Smith metropolitan area. Almost 25,000 people in that area now, or in Van Buren now. So random, but the term uh, bazooka Invented by a guy from Van Buren. Bob Burns, a comedic radio movie actor in the 1930s and 40s, uh, made a weird trombone-like instrument in high school, called it a bazooka, inspired by the word kazoo, that instrument, goofed around with this thing in some radio shows, played it in the Marines jazz band when he served in uh, World War I. And then in World War II, the U.S. military would start calling their handheld anti-tank rocket launchers bazookas. You know, I love random, obscure trivia like that. Uh, According to family stories, man, (laughs) 
We're going to see if I'm going to be able to like record this whole thing today. It's coming in and out. Uh, okay. All right. Look away. There we go. Now I can refocus. Screen was getting a little weird. According to family stories, Reeves first sought to assist law enforcement officers who were headquartered at the U.S. Marshal's office in Van Buren sometime in 1870 when he would have been 32. Uh, using his knowledge of Indian territory and his tracking skills, Reeves was able to make much better money as a scout and tracker throughout the territory than most and definitely made more money and steadier money than he was making as a farmer. Uh, with more money, able to relocate his mother, Para Lee, and his sister, Jane, to Van Buren as well. Established himself in this new community. Also minimized uh, contact with locals, unfortunately, though. Uh, many were former Confederate soldiers and sympathizers. 1872, less than stellar lawyer named William Story was appointed to the Federal Western District Court judgeship at Fort Smith. After slightly more than 100 murders were committed in Indian Territory in a short period of time, Story would have to resign uh, to avoid impeachment for bribery. In March of 1875, one of Reeves' biggest allies is going to be appointed to replace Story, a two-term representative to the U.S. Congress, member of the House Committee on Indian Affairs from St. Joseph, Missouri, Isaac Charles Parker, the new judge for Fort Smith, right, uh, appointed by President Ulysses S. Grant. Parker and Reeves would become business partners of a sort and respected friends over many years working together towards the common goal of greatly reducing crime in the area. One of Judge Parker's early moves after being appointed in 1875, as I mentioned earlier, was to order his Marshal Daniel P. Upham to hire 200 deputies, mainly to police Indian Territory. And according to records, the maximum amount of deputies that would ever uh, have on, they'd have on staff, that would probably like maybe 40. This small group had a lot of ground to cover, largest of any federal court in terms of uh, area in U.S. history, including the whole of Indian Territory and Western Arkansas. Altogether, somewhere between 75 to 100 deputies would die in shootouts with outlaws during Parker's two decades at Fort Smith trying to bring law to Indian Territory. Because of his knowledge of the area and fluency in the Creek and Seminole languages, Reeves immediately recognized as a huge asset to the government's cause in this area. Sometime, from March, sometime after March of 1875, Bass was approached by officials and asked to serve as a deputy uh, U.S. Marshal. He accepted the offer and became one of the first men who rode for Parker. It has been assumed that Reeves was the first African-American commissioned uh, officer west of Mississippi as a, as a deputy U.S. Marshal. That may or may not be true. Certainly one of the first. We know that the majority of black deputy U.S. Marshals that worked for the uh, Fort Smith Court were not appointed until 1890 or later. Deputy U.S. Marshals for the Western District of Arkansas uh, were ordered to make arrests for murder, attempts to murder, manslaughter, assault with intent to kill or to maim, arson, robbery, rape, burglary, larceny, uh, incest, adultery, and willfully and maliciously placing obstructions on a railroad track. What a random assortment of crimes. Hey, Charlie, uh, Reeves just brought in another murderer and stagecoach robber. Who are you currently tracking down? Oh, hot on the trail of two outlaws this week, Sam. I heard uh, uh, Jumbo Wilson is staying at his mama's house. I plan on bringing that sister fucking to court tomorrow morning. Then I ride back out to Evil Mustache Canyon. Nab Shifty Pete for tying yet another damsel in distress to some train tracks last week. Uh, for these offenses, a warrant was uh, desired but not mandatory. For other offenses, such as violations of the revenue laws or introducing liquor in Indian country, uh, a warrant was necessary unless the felon was caught in the act. Interesting priorities. You can't arrest someone without a warrant for introducing liquor into Indian territory, but you can arrest someone without a warrant for stepping out on their marriage. Deputies were also made aware of the types of crimes for which Indians could be arrested. These crimes varied, specifically uh, or specified, uh, by jurisdictional treaty restrictions on sovereign Indian nations uh, who police their own citizens. Uh, a 1907 Oklahoma City newspaper wrote of Reeves' early career and the perils of the job. 80 miles west of Fort Smith, it was known as the deadline. And whenever a deputy marshal from Fort Smith or Paris, Texas, crossed the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas track, 
He took his own life in his hands and he knew it. Our nearly every trail would be found posted by outlaws a small card warning certain deputies that if they ever crossed the deadline, they would be killed. Reeves has a dozen of these cards, which were posted for his special benefit. And in those days, such a notice was no idle boast. And many an outlaw has bitten the dust trying to ambush a deputy on these trails. Man, what a different era. The modern equivalent would be uh, posting a sign along a country road or at the edge of a neighborhood, just saying straight up that any law enforcement who continue and enter will be hunted down and killed. Man, Reeves knew these trails well. Uh, during the 1880s, there was two principal trails that led up from Denison, Texas into Indian, into Indian country, frequented by horse thieves, bootleggers, and others. They were known as the uh, Seminole Trail and the Potawatomie Trail. The two tribes, not like each other, stayed off each other's trails except to fight. Space between them, uh, uh, scenes of many violent clashes, and Reeves involved in many of those clashes. Although uh, Reeves carried two Colt pistols, his main weapon was his Winchester rifle. The Winchester was the weapon of choice for many in the Indian Territory and on the Western frontier in general. Pistols were used as backup weapons or close quarter defense options. Deputy U.S. Marshals also generally had shotguns in their arsenal. Whenever a deputy marshal left uh, Fort Smith to capture outlaws in the territory, he almost always took with him his outfit that consisted of his grub wagon, a cook, usually a posseman and or guard, depending on what particular outlaws he was after. Uh, the grub wagon, sometimes called the tumbleweed wagon in the area, was commonly stocked with bread, beans, coffee, bacon, beef, molasses, sugar, flour, potatoes, venison, and ham. Makes sense. Yeah, you're out hunting some bandit for weeks. Yeah, they're hiding way out in the country. It's not like you're going to uh, come past some fast food joints or snack machines. I love historical details like this. Like these guys brought a rolling kitchen with them. That makes so much more sense than in the movies. When dude just gallop out into a deserty, dusty expanse, you know, and just their horses. They don't even have uh, big saddlebags full of gear because that doesn't look cool. Maybe a little flask for water, maybe some venison, maybe a rolled up blanket to lay on at night. And that's it. I was wondering, I'm like, how the fuck are they surviving out there? That's not enough food. That's not enough water. They couldn't just drink out of rivers and streams unless they really wanted to risk, you know, McGill popping off their buttholes with some dysentery. And they're not bringing a pot to boil any water in. No, they brought a grub wagon. That makes way more sense. I mean, for short rides, fine. You know, a flask and some jerky. But for longer rides down the open country, no way. The possum would cost about $3 a day, as did the guard. And the cook and his kitchen together cost about $20 per month. And yes, uh, now my, my shirt's off. One of my shirts off. We had to take a little break there. I had to get some water and try and uh, refocus, re, uh, re-get my temperature uh, re-regulated. All right, the deputy paid his own expenses. Got all the fees, whatever dead or alive bounty was all for them. That's how they could afford this. Right, the government allowed 75 cents a day to feed prisoners, captured mileage for the distance. They traveled at 10 cents a mile. It was a hazardous business, but successful de- deputies could make big money through lucrative bounties. Deputy, of course, rode horseback and ranged wide from the wagon, which was simply his base of supplies in his rolling prison. Reeves would say that he never made a 30-day trip back uh, with less than $400 worth of fees and expense money, about $11,000 in today's dollars. He once went to uh, Mud Creek, brought in 16 prisoners at one time, and the fees amounted to $700, while the total overall expense to him was less than $300. He once captured 17 prisoners in Comanche County, took them into Fort Smith. The fees for that trip amounted to $900. That's the equivalent to almost $25,000 today. Biggest haul I can find a mention of him making was $5,000, which would be about $134,000 in today's money. So profit-wise, he did pretty well. You know, he, uh, he was able to afford a big-ass house at one time in Van Buren. In addition to storing food, you also needed to bring a wagon to jail, uh, whoever, or, or, yeah, a wagon to jail, whoever you caught on these bounty hunts. Bounty hunter, another way to describe who these, uh, you know, deputies were. Like Bass Reeves was basically Boba Fett with a cowboy hat, a thick mustache, and a six-shooter. 
Each wagon was equipped with a long, heavy chain. When a prisoner was captured, he was shackled. He didn't get thrown over the back of a horse, galloped back into town like in the movies. Uh, at night, all the prisoners were shackled in pairs, and shackles passed through a ring and a long chain. One end of the chain was locked around the rear axis of the wagon. In this manner, one man could handle up to around uh, 30 prisoners if he wished to. Uh, bounty hunters and the men who rode with them always had to make sure these prisoners never got within, uh, you know, reach their six shooters, the danger ever present. No guard or cook ever allowed to gamble with the prisoners for fear that they would lose their guns. Early in his career as a roving lawman, Reeves, uh, Reeves rode out of Fort Smith as a posseman for other deputies, right? To gain some experience, like, a, like an apprenticeship. He'd also act as a guard, including at hangings. Rarely did two deputies ride out in a posse together, but the posseman were considered acting deputy U.S. Marshals while they were on the trail. Definition of a posseman, by the way, pretty loose. An able-bodied man serving as a member, you know, of a posse. Uh, basically, a guy not hired by the judge, not an official government representative, but a dude who could fucking handle himself with a gun around some outlaws. In this context, you know, like a, like a bounty hunter a, apprentice. A deputy's posse usually consisted of one of, or one to six extra members, and sometimes could balloon into larger groups, especially after large crimes like train robberies, where a, a big gang was behind them. Didn't take long for Bass to go from posseman to deputy marshal and then to quickly emerge as one of the best marshals. Excuse me. Uh, before we go further into the timeline and start talking about some of his arrests, let's check out a few random stories about the man that just added to his legend. A woman named uh, Standy Sturdivant, who grew up in the Osage Nation of Oklahoma, heard the following three stories about Bass Reeves on the Oklahoma frontier as a small girl. The first is the dog story. Bass Reeves was known to be an animal lover, was known to usually have a dog with him as a companion. He cherished not only his uh, own animals, but also other people's. Once up near uh, Venita in the Cherokee Nation, he came upon a man beaten on his hound dog. The dog had just had some puppies, was apparently in somewhat poor condition, grated on Reeves' nerves that someone could beat an animal, especially one that had just given birth. Reeves grabbed the stick from the man who was Cherokee, threatened him with bodily harm if he didn't stop thrashing the dog. Reeves told the man he would be back, then he leaves, turns later with the box to collect all the puppies and the mother dog. Then tossed some coins at the dog beater, rides away, leading the uh, mother dog along on a rope. Reeves took the animals to a friend, someone up uh, somewhere up in that area, who knew how to take good care of them. Several months later, Reeves said after he conducted his business in the area, he passed by the same friend, took one of the now lively puppies, and headed home to raise it. Bojangles just poked his head up, suddenly became extra interested in today's episode. Uh, the next story Sandy heard was the skunk story. On another occasion, down near uh, Choctaw Nation, near Robber's Cave, Bass Reeves and his posse had stopped for the night and made camp. They'd been out rounding, uh, you know, rounding up felons. We're on their way back to Fort Smith with, with a contingent of prisoners. After dinner, when everyone was asleep, a skunk crawled out around Reeves. And now some, you know, some skunks don't carry uh, odor around themselves unless they're riled up. Well, when Bass awoke, the skunk was curled up, blissfully sleeping next to him. One of the prisoners woke up at the same time, proceeded to yell, carry on, trying to rouse the skunk into doing something obnoxious. Bass reached over, gently stroked the animal, talked soothingly to it, and then it just moseyed off without spraying anybody. The Reeves charm, dude struck fear into the heart of bandits and love into the heart of skunks. One more. Uh, this story was told by uh, Miss Studevant's grandmother, which allegedly occurred near uh, Uliga, Cherokee Nation, the home of Will Rogers. It's harder and harder to read. <laughs> there, I have to look away every once in a while because the screen is bending. Oh man, what a weird drug. Uh, her grandmother said Bass Reeves was afraid of no man. It was like he had a destiny and that his destiny was fulfilled or until it was fulfilled, he was invincible. She said that's a belief that's been held by many Native Americans. Since Reeves operated in Indian territory, it's possible he adopted this line of thought himself. 
Well, while out making his rounds one day, Reeves came across a lynch mob near one of the uh, large cattle ranches. Uh, evidently, a rustler had been caught, was about to be strung up, you know, strung to a tree on the prairie by a group of cowboys. Without any thought to the danger he was in, Reeves just rode straight into the lynch mob, cut the man down with his knife, rode off with the man without saying a word to anybody. It astonished everyone uh, present so much that they just didn't pursue him. Maybe they knew who he was. Didn't want to risk, uh, risk ending up dead, you know? Again, I hear Sam Elliott, who now is fucking part of my acid trip. <laughs> Normally, taking a lynch mob's prize off a hanging tree was a great way to end up at the end of a rope yourself. But you'd have a better chance of putting on a swimsuit. You'd have a better chance of putting a swimsuit on a rattlesnake than you would have getting a noose around the neck of Bass Reeves. I hope this, Joe, is this still entertaining? Yes, it's great. You're, <laughs> okay. you're doing you're doing way better than you think you are. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're doing a great job. All right. Thank you. Uh, now let's jump back in the timeline. Okay, Reeves' home court at Fort Smith ran nonstop in the fight against the copious amount of lawbreakers in the area. Between May 10th, 1875 and September 1st, 1896, Judge Parker tried 13,490 criminal cases and one better than 8,500 convictions. Approximately one in every hundred of those found guilty was sentenced to death, usually by hanging. Uh, for the others, it was imprisonment from one to 45 years in one of the state penitentiaries that accepted federal prisoners. Parker's court was in session for six days a week, Monday through Saturday, 7.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. Yeah, and then they have lunch, talk about who they're going to kill, and then come back from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, the vast majority of cases he saw, 85% were crimes committed in Indian territory. It was Parker's theory, which he often stated that certainty of punishment was the only way to combat crime. From 1875 until 1889, there was no appeal. You couldn't appeal his decisions. Parker's word was final, except on those very rare occasions when the president intervened to pardon somebody. Parker sentenced 88 men to be hanged. 79 were hanged. Uh, one was killed trying to escape. One died before their execution date. Seven won reversals after that became possible in 1891. Uh, the 79 who were hung, 30 were white, 26 were Indian, and 23 were black. So he dude spread it around at quick glance, which seems pretty fair. No race got preferential treatment when their life was on the line. Uh, Reeves went out on the trails constantly, working at a number of different targets in a number of capacities. Uh, worked as a train guard on prisoner transfers, uh, helped hunt down bootleggers and killers. By the time of the 1880 census, the Reeves family included eight children now. Sally, 16, Robert, 14, Harriet, 12, Georgia, 10, Alice, 8, Newland, 7, Edgar, 4, and Lula, 2. Alice was states uh, years later when being interviewed that on a regular basis, attorneys William H.H. H. Clayton and William M. Cravens took the train from Fort Smith to Van Buren to visit Reeves to talk about their cases. She said they always stayed to eat dinner with the family. Clayton was the prosecuting attorney and Cravens was appointed to defend many of the felons arrested and brought to Fort Smith. Clearly, Reeves, you know, was a respected man in the area. Clearly, my notes are moving around. Uh, Reeves' legend was already uh, <laughs> growing by 1880 when he was 42. He was known as a man who couldn't be bribed, was fair, and was fearless. Also sounded pretty lively. One uh, early Indian Territory pioneer said, Bass Reeves was a very big man, told jokes, was boastful and lusty, full of life, and wore a large black hat. He had a deep and resonant voice that could be very authoritative. His laugh was described as booming and thunderous. Due to his size, he always rode a large horse, Bass said, when you get as big as me, a small horse is as worthless as a preacher in a whiskey joint fight. Just when you need him bad to help you out, he's got to stop and think about it a little bit. It's a pretty funny analogy. Uh, also due to less available food and, and uh, more rugged lives, I guess guys really were a fucking lot smaller back then. No, they, weren't, they weren't that much shorter, just an inch or two shorter on average than now, but way lighter. 
Obesity, based on a lot of 19th century photos, uh, not the problem in the U.S. that it is now. People were, uh, you know, not eating loads of processed foods full of high fructose, fructose corn syrup. Also, no weightlifting back then, right? Big muscular dude back then was somebody I would just describe as like uh, wiry now. There are several pictures of Bass Reeves. And to me, he looks lanky or maybe even skinny. Definitely not like some big barrel chested dude that the, that the stories portray, right? Six foot two, 180 pounds. That was fucking gigantic back then. Now I think it's pretty close to skinny. I'm 6'1". I'm somewhere around 235 pounds now because I've, I've been losing some weight. Uh, despite what my kids may joke about, I'm not fat. Uh, not even my doctor thinks so. I have some extra weight around the midsection, but not a ton. And I don't think of myself as a huge dude, bigger than average, but not like a huge dude. But apparently back in the 1880s, I would have been a fucking mutant. I would have needed to, to ride two horses, right? If Bass Reeves needed one big horse, I would have had to have two horses and like a hammock strung in between the horses. <laughs> just to carry my fucking bridge troll ass around. All right, I know that has nothing to do with today's tale. I just keep getting hung up on descriptions of him as this massive dude. Like those Wild West guys were time warped into the future and just introduced to like one NFL football team. Their fucking heads would just explode. Anyway, Bass, the Mountain Reeves, uh, rode mostly bay sorrel gray horses when he made trips to uh, Indian nations. Reeves' ability with horses only grew. He was often involved in wagers over his horseman skills. As a big, huge giant of a man, Bass learned to disguise himself on horseback by learning uh, riding tricks from native tribes. They taught him how to look smaller in the saddle at great distances. Also, Reeves wouldn't uh, always ride his best horses when he was in disguise. So that'd be a dead giveaway, right? That he was a peace officer. Uh, outlaws many times would ride inferior horses that were unshod. Deputies always had very uh, good saddle horses that wore horseshoes. They were noted for riding the best horses in the Indian territory. So Reeves always kept a couple of regular saddle ponies for undercover work. Love it. I wonder if he had miniature ponies. God, that'd be so great. Like his knees riding up so high, like a grown man trying to ride in one of those big wheels, trying to disguise himself as maybe like a young white girl. Big, gruff, like black bounty hunter with a little blonde wig and little ponytails. Little blue and white checkered dress or something. Nothing to see here. I'm just a young white girl riding a miniature pony far from home looking for Ma and Pa. Definitely not a bounty hunter. Definitely don't have a rifle poorly disguised as a princess wand across my lap. Uh, traffic to the Indian Territory on a regular basis allowed Reeves to become uh, familiar with a significant number of the residents there, which would help him greatly on hunts, right? And having friendly homes, he could stop in, ask folks if, he'd, uh, if they'd seen his targets, maybe to trade some supplies, you know, something else if they needed it. All right, let's talk about some specific arrests now. It's about time. Let's get to some yip yip yah shit already. Come on, let's get to some plinking. Let's get to some excitement. While searching out felons in the Indian Territory, uh, Reeves arrested John Lynch for murder. October 9th, 1882, Deep Fort Creek of Creek Nation. And she'd been indicted for murder along with Robert Gentry and Willie Fisher. Uh, in, connection, in connection with his arrest, Reeves uh, served subpoenas on Sugar George, James Stick, <laughs> and Dick Glass on October 12th at Cane Creek. George and Glass are two of the most famous personalities in the history of Creek freedmen in the Indian Territory. Uh, Sugar George was prominent in the political economic development of the Creek freedmen and Creek Nation as one of its wealthiest citizens. Dick Glass awesome name, uh, one of the most famous Creek Freedmen outlaws in the history of uh, Indian Territory. An early resident of the Indian Territory, Lem E. Blevin, stated that I have heard Bass say that he took his U.S. Marshal's commission just to, get, just to get to kill Dick Glass and George Mack, uh, both Negroes. These two Negroes were bad outlaws and they caused the U.S. Marshals lots of trouble. And that's just a quote that I'm reading. Uh, Bass, uh, Bass is justice. He didn't, he didn't care what color you were. You know, justice was justice. 
It was called, uh, okay, also, how great are the names Sugar George and Dick Glass? They sound again like, like 80s porn stars. Tonight on the Hustler Channel, Sugar George, Ginger Lynn, Dick Glass, and Little Oral Annie star in The Good, The Bad, and The Bukkake. <laughs> I wrote in my stupid notes that I was supposed to whistle The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly theme. I forgot how to whistle. <laughs> that's how you know that the acid really kicked in where you're like, I don't know how to make my lips turn into a whistle. Uh, okay. On another bounty hunt around this time. So forget that. Let's just get, let's just, let's just get on away from that. Uh, on another bounty hunt around this time, Reeves made a trip to Seminole to return with the prisoner who was being held there. While they were on their way back, the prisoner bargained with Reeves. Prisoner bet that his steed could outrun Reeves' steed. And if, and if it did, would Reeves tear up his warrant? And apparently Reeves liked this guy. He was in a gambling mood. So he took him up on it. And he was so confident that his horse could win. He said it wouldn't be necessary, you know, to, I don't, I don't fucking know. He wouldn't be necessary. What am I trying to say? Reeves was so confident in his horse that he said it would not be necessary to, to tear it up as he, the prisoner, could not run the horse. Oh, the, the warrant. Uh, but it was Reeves who was surprised by the speed of the convict's horse. So in the end, Reeves apparently did tear up the warrant as the prisoner rode away and was not captured again. Must not have been a real important prisoner. Maybe, maybe he's one of those adulterers or some incest goon. Maybe he cheated on his wife and fucked a sister or an aunt or something. He was a double outlaw, an incest adulterer. Maybe Bass lost the race because he was uh, out in the range on one of those fucking miniature ponies again. Uh, another story from around this time helped establish uh, Reeves as a master of disguise. Unfortunately, just like that last tale, it does not involve a miniature pony. One mile south of what is now Farrow or Spring Hill, Oklahoma, in eastern uh, Oakfusky County, Bass Reeves had made camp in some thickets. It was his custom to hold several prisoners uh, until he had, you know, uh, enough in camp for them to be loaded into wagons and hauled off to Fort Smith. He had a man named Campbell who stayed uh, all the time in camp with the prisoners, working as a guard and as a camp cook. Probably get a disc- discounted rate. So you got, you got two guys doing one job. All the prisoners he had in this go round were seated on a large log cut especially for this purpose. The prisoners' feet would be shackled together. The shackles pinned at the ground near the end of the log. The rest of the loose shackles pinned to the log itself. While at camp, Bass had some of these prisoners discussing or heard some of these prisoners discussing some notices that had been plastered about offering $5,000 as a reward for the capture of two naughty brothers. That's about $134,000 in today's money. And Reeves, of course, wanted that reward. He studied the many ways in which he could make a capture. And he finally heard these two men were somewhere near the Texas border. So he journeyed that direction, got a posse together of his best posse guys. Story goes that he camped a, a full 28 miles from where he thought that they were living at their mom's house. Of course they were. It was at a great distance, but he believed it would keep suspicion low and allowed him time to get familiar with the lay of the land and make a plan. His plan was to go undercover, disguised as a tramp, <laughs> and to walk the full 28 miles to his target mother's target's mother's house. So that's what he did. His disguise in- included rags, a cane, shoes, which the souls had a little floppy old hat. He had sh- uh, he shot holes in his floppy hat to help sell his tramp backstory. Under all this loose-fitting get-up, he carried his martial tools, had a couple pair of handcuffs, six-shooter. Um, when he reached his destination, the mother of the two boys came out to see what he wanted. Reeves uh, really sold this part of the tramp. Said he just, you know, just I just want a bite to eat. I'm very hungry. My feet are blistered. He wanted to say that the law was after him. You know, they even shot at him. Look at these holes in my hat. And then this lady was like, I'll be glad to give you something to eat. She invited Reeves in. While eating, the woman confided in Reeves that her two boys were also wanted by the law. Damn it. She hated the law. And she took pity on people who were persecuted by the law, like this poor tramp fella. And that night, Reeves heard a sharp whistle from the creek near the house. He watched as the old woman went outside, answered her 
with her own whistle. I wish I could whistle. Two riders now came up to her, her boys, his $5,000 targets. The two soon came back to the house together and met Bass. He kept up the tramp illusion and the group decided to work together to evade the law. Right, but, but he's lying. Bass convinced them not to divide their forces. They should sleep in the same room together. And then when they fell asleep, he fucking handcuffed them in their sleep. And he waited until the morning and then he kicked them awake. And he said, come on, boys, let's get going from here. That's, that's the quote. Talk about a rude awakening. How dumb do you feel if you wake up that way? How pissed are you? He began to mark the, the march, the shocked duo shackled back to his camp a full 28 miles away. The boy's mom now, you know, she's been duped. She followed for the first three miles, calling Reeves every dirty name she, she knew. Of course she did. Uh, upon finally reaching his camp, Reeves found his followers there waiting for him. And he remarked, maybe you think my money won't, <laughs> this is his quote. Maybe you think my money won't turn green now, boys. I have literally no fucking idea what that phrase means. I've read it over and over. No clue. Uh, I Googled it. Google also confused, but that's what he said. And I'm passing it along and maybe you know. Sometime in 1883, Reeves uh, ran down an outlaw from Texas named Jim Webb now. He made his way to uh, the Chickasaw Nation, part of the Indian Territory. He found uh, employment with a local rancher of note, Billy Washington, who at that time was a business partner with a guy named, and I shit you not, Dick McLish. <laughs> a prominent Chickasaw Indian in an extensive ranch in the southern portion of the Chickasaw Nation. Fuck's sake. Only would be better if his name was Dick Delish or Dick McLick. <laughs> I had no idea that this episode would have so many outlaws with porn star names. We have Sugar George, Dick Glass, Billy Steele. Now we have Dick McLish. Uh, Webbs was hired as the foreman of the Washington McLish Ranch with 45 cowboys under his supervision, many of them being African-Americans. Webb had a bad temper, equally bad about bringing his guns out during arguments. As far as uh, being a foreman went, uh, his heavy-fisted approach seemed to work until, of course, one day it didn't. Work at the farm uh, one afternoon, Webb noticed that his neighbor, Reverend William Stewart, a black church circuit preacher, had started a small fire on his own farm and it quickly burned out of control and was starting to spread to the vast Washington McLish ranch fields. Webb was pissed, uh, went to confront Stewart in a short but very hostile argument, ending with Stewart dead at Webb's hands. Reeves took the warrant to go arrest Jim Webb for murder. At this time, he had a white man named Floyd Wilson riding as his possumant. Interesting, interesting dynamic in the late 1800s in America. White man working for a black man. Uh, Reeves and Wilson reached the Washington McLish Ranch about 8 o'clock one morning, several days later. As Reeves and Wilson rode up to the ranch, uh, they noticed uh, only three men there. Jim Webb, a cowboy named Frank Smith, who was a trusted friend of Webb, and the ranch cook. Reeves had never seen Webb, but thought he recognized him from the description he had been given uh, before leaving Fort Smith. To make sure that this man was Webb, however, uh, Reeves and Wilson rode up looking like any traveling cowboys. Just asked for breakfast. Webb was immediately weary of the men. Both he and Frank Smith had their hands on their weapons as Reeves and Wilson approached the porch. Bass did his uh, best to convince the men that he wasn't, uh, wasn't anything to worry about. He offered to take care of the horses while they waited for breakfast. But then as he did, Webb kept his, uh, his eyes on him and his fingers on his gun. Bass couldn't trick Webb, who never dropped his gaze. Reeves was able to uh, wait, though, until Webb dropped his guard just enough for him to knock the gun away, wrap a big hand around the man's neck, all while drawing his own pistol, putting it to Webb's face. He squeaked out of surrender as Bass choked him while he was also staring down the barrel of Reeves's Colt 45. In the meantime, Reeves's buddy Wilson was so overwhelmed by the suddenness of this attack, he was unable to react fast enough, wasn't able to seize Frank Smith, that cowboy who was Webb's buddy. Even as Webb surrendered, Smith World fired two shots at Reeves, luckily missing him both times. With Reeves completely controlled by his left hand, Reeves now turned his uh, half his attention to Smith, fired one shot. 
Smith fell to the ground, surrendered with a 45 slug in his stomach. On the return trip, Frank Smith died from his wounds. Smith was buried without ceremony. Reeves, Webb, Wilson traveled on to Fort Smith. Upon reaching Fort Smith, Reeves placed Webb in the uh, federal jail and proceeded to forget all about him. But their story is not done. It'll end with some hardcore Wild West dying words. I love this shit. Uh, Webb was given a hearing before the U.S. commissioner, bound over for trial. After spending almost a year in jail, two dedicated friends, Jim Bywater and Chris Smith, managed to get him released on $17,000 bond. And then when the time came for Webb's trial for murder, uh, Webb was gone. And that $17,000 bond was forfeited. Uh, Webb made uh, Bywater and Smith's investments worthwhile. Uh, when Reeves heard that Webb had fled, you know, he did some poking around, learned that uh, Webb made his way back to Indian territory. Right away, he's back on Webb's ass. Quickly, he learns that Webb is hiding out at Jim Bywater's general store on the south side of the Arbuckle Mountains, home of Turner Falls, beautiful little waterfall and swimming hole. Uh, the store was located near where the Whiskey Trail entered the mountains and where a spring supplied large quantities of water. It's now known as the uh, ghost town of Woodford, Oklahoma. Some people still live there, but not many. Reeves took a possum named John Cantrell with him around this time and a man with some experience when it came to apprehending dangerous criminals and a guy who knew how to handle himself in a fight. When Reeves and Cantrell came within sight of Bywater's store, Reeves sent Cantrell ahead to see if Webb was actually there. Cantrell rode ahead, slipped up to the store, and sure enough, there sat Jim Webb uh, near one of the windows on the opposite side of the building. Cantrell eagerly, silently motioned for Reeves to ride on up. One witness, a man named D.C. Gideon, uh, described what happened next, saying, as he went dashing up, Webb espied him and jumping through the open window, armed with both revolver and Winchester, ran for his horse that stood about 100 yards away. Reeves cut him off from his horse and Webb turned down a clump of bushes, ran about 600 yards, turned up and fired. The first shot grazed the horn of Reeves' saddle. The second cut a button from his coat and the third cut off both bridle reins below his hand, allowing them to fall to the ground. As Reeves jumped from his horse, another bullet cut the brim from his hat. That sounds a little bit far-fetched. Reeves then fired his first shot and before Webb could fall, had uh, sent two Winchester balls through his body at 600 yards. These fuckers are trading bullets. Get the fuck out of here. Maybe, I guess. That's some legendary shooting. However far away they really were, it does seem certain that the two men got into a gunfight and that Reeves was the only man to survive it. After being shot, Webb lay in the ground with his revolver in his hand, calling Reeves to come to him. Reeves advanced to him while uh, keeping his gun trained on him. He and Webb, he, hit, or he had Webb toss his gun to the side just uh, out of his reach. Bass and all the witnesses walked up to the dying man in time to hear Webb say, give me your hand, Bass. He extended his own with a an effort to grasp it. And he continued, you're a brave man. I want you to accept my revolver and scabbard as a present and you must accept them. Take it. For with it, I have killed 11 men, four of them in Indian territory. And I expected to make you the 12th. Bass accepted the present, stored it away to show others later. Uh, this dying declaration of Webb was taken into writing by uh, Mr. Bywater, the store owner, right? Friend of Jim Webb. And that is some serious Wild West shit. How, uh, how many of uh, Reeves... Been so accurate at such a great distance. How is that even possible? According to one legend I came across, he was all hopped up on the Whipple. Mm hmm. <laughs> Feeling a little soft in the saddle. Trigger finger, a little hesitant. Aim a little shaky. You let that outlaw put some fear into that heart of yours? Sounds to me like you're getting mighty low on Whipple. Wild West edition. Pound a can and take control of your environment. Made with rattlesnake venom, wolf blood, cactus needles, gun barrel shavings, bullets, belt buckles, moonshine, black gunpowder, orange juice, the scalps of inferior warriors, and laudanum whiskey saw. Whipple. Wild West edition will return you back to being you. 
Restore your aim back to being true. Fuck you. Do not fuck your family. That's legal around these parts. And drink Whipple! Wild West Edition. Now available in brothel papaya juice and high noon wild cherry showdown flavors. Oh my god. Uh, maybe the legend that I came across uh, saying that Bass Reeves was hopped up on uh, some Wild West Whipple was the one that I wrote. And I would love to have some Wild West Whipple right now if it was a real thing. All right, back to our timeline. All right, I have to take a little break again. Holy shit. Now I don't have a shirt on the show. Uh, the year 1884 was a monumental one for Bass's uh, career as a peace officer in Indian Territory. He was involved in several deadly shootouts with outlaws, had one tragic incident happen in his camp uh, on one of his trips. I, I have a uh, couple cool tales, couple cool tales to tell from 1884. On April 9th, 1884, Reeves and his posse made camp near Cherokee Town in the Chickasaw Nation, east of Paul's Valley in current Garvin County. Posse had five prisoners in custody on their way uh, east to Fort Smith. A heated argument broke out between Reeves and his cook, William Leach. And then late that night, uh, wouldn't you know it, while sitting around the campfire, uh, Leach was accidentally shot right in the neck by Reeves. And he soon died from the wound. Of course he did. It was 1884, and he'd been shot in the fucking neck. The survival rate for that had to have been uh, pretty low. According to Reeves, a cartridge got lodged in his rifle, and while trying to extract it, the gun just happened to go off and a bullet hit Leach. Uh, Reeves sent for a doctor. But Leach didn't live long enough to see him. This incident would cause Reeves a lot of mental and financial misery. Later on, the popular story before and after the trial, which took place in 1887, was told by a group of deputy U.S. Marshals who were uh, meeting in Guthrie, Oklahoma, January 1911, uh, in January of 1911, and it was recorded by an Oklahoma City newspaper. Here's an excerpt. My best uh, uh, cowboy voice. Let's see. Wait, that was from that was that was the Whipple. I have another. I have another cowboy. There we go. That's the right. That's the right vibe. You recollect when Bass killed his cook, hired all the good lawyers in Fort Smith to keep them from being on the other side. You know when they tried. When they tried to <laughs> Jesus Christ. Two years later, well, Bass was coming back into Fort Smith with a string of prisoners in it cook that he allowed to carry a gun. Now Bass had a little dog that he was mighty fond of, carried him with him for all the time and had taught the dog to beg for something to eat by standing up on his hind legs. That cook got a grudge against Bass while they were still several days away from Fort Smith and took it out on the dog. Bass, this was the way he told it, told the cook to quit several times and this must have made him sullen. One night when the prisoners were lying by the campfire, chained together with Bass uh, back on his elbows, with his Winchester by his side, that little dog got up on his hind feet and danced up to the cook, begging with his front paws. And cook didn't do anything but empty a skillet of boiling grease down the dog's throat and grab for his pistol. Bass slipped his Winchester forward quicker, and it, wait, and it went right off in that cook's face, and he pitched forward into the fire. Bass didn't pay any attention to him for a minute, since he knew he had winged him, but tried to keep the little dog, which was dying a few feet away. Bass saw the dog die and then turned round to finish the cook, but found his bullet and hit him right in the neck and shot him in... His head so nearly off that when Bass kicked the body, it rolled into the fire. Bojangles just stood up on both his hind legs. The little celebration jig. He hates how the dog died, but he loved how the story has ended. Praise Bojangles. 
that story is true, then uh, fuck that cook, you know? You pour boiling grease down a dog's throat, you deserve a bullet in the neck. Despite this killing being technically illegal, uh, you can't legally kill a man because he kills your dog. Reeves would later be found innocent because fuck that guy. And he'd also continue to work the trails as a deputy marshal after possibly serving six months in jail while awaiting his trial, which would take place in either 1886 or 1887. There's different accounts as to uh, how he may have shot his cook. The, this one that we just told was uh, uh, the, the, the version of my notes, at least. Far and away my favorite and most interesting, so let's just leave the story where it's at. On to another badass 1884 Reeves bounty hunter tale now. On August 28th, 1884, the Muscogee Indian Journal called Reeves one of the best marshals on the force and covered one of his cases favorably when he uh, had to kill a man named Frank Buck. When interviewed, Reeves told the journal about another bounty hunt earlier that year that put him into the tightest spot he'd ever found himself in. Reeves said, oh man, I can't focus. You're doing good. I, I, I just can't, um, I can't, the, the words won't hold their shape. Woo. All right. Man. I just can't read. Ah, shoot. Hey guys, uh, it is the next day now. Uh, I'm back. The rest of this story is going to be a little more cohesive. I, I know the first part, I don't think it was too bad. But um, after what you just heard, before I just pop back on here, the I couldn't read. I literally, the words would not hold their shape in the screen. The, the room was moving too much. And then I went home and proceeded to trip balls uh, for about 10 more hours. <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the very end of the episode. Right now, we got we got more Western. I don't, I don't know what happened to my Western shirt. At least I have a shirt on right now. Things got pretty wild. Okay. So, and then I'll talk more about this in The Secret Suck for you space lizards listening to Time Suck. We'll, we'll get into it. Uh, uh, Lindsay will come in and talk about babysitting me for the whole trip. It was quite the experience for her, I'm sure. Here we go. Bass Reeves, August 28th, backing up just a bit, uh, 1884. The Muscogee Indian Journal called Reeves one of the best marshals on the force and covered one of his cases favorably when he had to kill a man named Frank Buck. When interviewed, Reeves told the journal about another bounty hunt earlier that year that put him into the tightest spot he had ever found himself in. Reeves said he was riding the Seminole Whiskey Trail, great name for a trail, uh, looking for two white men and two Negroes. This is, again, I know it's old-timey language, uh, when he was ambushed by three outlaws known as the Brunter Brothers who knew he was looking for them. They caught the legend off guard. He was lucky they didn't kill him when they did. They had their guns on him, made him dismount. He got down, showed them the warrants for their arrest, and then he asked them to tell him what the day of the month was so he could report the proper record when he handed them over, right? Their guns are pointed at him, uh, to the government. Well, they started laughing at him for having the balls to act like he was still going to arrest them when they had their guns drawn down on him. And when they laughed, they relaxed their guard just long enough for Reeves to strike. Reeves whipped out his six-shooter, killed one of the Brunter brothers as quick as lightning, grabbed the gun of another brother in time to save himself from being shot, then killed a second Brunter while he was still holding on to the last living brother's rifle, and then Reeves struck that son of a bitch over the head with his six-shooter and fucking killed him. Hot damn! Bingo, bango! That is some yeah, yeah, yeah! Uh, already got better gunfights in this story than we had in the Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday stories combined, and there's still more tale to be told. Again, Sam Elliott. Would love this. Bass Reeves coming up against three outlaws. All with their guns drawn down on them. That just ain't a fair fight. Poor boys didn't have a chance. Would have had better odds of trying to beat a grizzly bear wrestling. 
All right, October 17th, 1884 now. Despite stories like these, not everyone thought Reeves was the best bounty hunter. The Fort Smith Weekly Elevator, the names of these papers back then, uh, on October 17th reported, Bass Reeves, one of the most successful of the marshals doing business in territory, has been discharged from the force by Marshal Bowles. It seems he had a habit of letting a prisoner escape when more could be made than by holding him, and that is where the trouble came in. Some bounty hunter shit. When there's a better outlaw to be had, maybe let another outlaw go. If Bass did, in fact, uh, lose his martial status, he didn't lose it for long. He'd be back at it the following year. Additional articles or blurbs attacking his character would show up in local papers from time to time. Uh, Not surprising. I mean, he was A, a black man in America in the 19th century, and he was B, a dude who killed quite a few men and arrested a fuck ton of others. That is a great way to make a lot of enemies. Most of the press on Reeves was positive. Off to more Wild West shenanigans now. On September 11th, 1885, Deputy Reeves received a warrant for the arrest of Fayette Barnett and the infamous female outlaw Belle Starr. Belle Starr was known as the Bandit Queen of Dallas. She ran an organized racket of horse thievery and stagecoach robbery during her 16-year career as an outlaw. Belle and Fayette were accused of stealing a horse from Albert McCarthy, whom Reeves had arrested a few years earlier for cattle theft. Dude arrested everyone. He arrested people, then later arrested other people who wronged the people he'd previously arrested. McCarthy's horse was valued at $100, a lot of money back then. Nice horse. It was uh, been said in numerous sources that Reeves and Starr were friends, and it is quite possible he told her he had a warrant for her arrest. Oftentimes during his career, according to some counts, uh, Reeves would tell acquaintances and friends that he had a warrant and for them to turn themselves in so he wouldn't have to go haul them around the country. On January 21st, 1886, Bell Starr did that. She turned herself into Fort Smith at the federal jail, surrendered to the U.S. Marshals there. She stated that she did not propose to be dragged around by some federal deputy. This would be the only uh, time that Bell Starr would surrender to federal authorities. She would be murdered three years later. There are several different accounts as to how it happened because Wild West, no shortage of legends and varying accounts. She died on February 3rd, 1889, two days before her 41st birthday, died violently. According to one account, she was riding home from a neighbor's house when she was ambushed. After she fell off her horse, she was shot again multiple times to make sure she was dead. Her death resulted from shotgun wounds to the back, neck, shoulder, and face. Legend says she was shot with her own double-barrel shotgun. According to scout, sheriff, and cowboy, Frank Pistol Pete Eaton, a dude who lived from 1860, just think about this, from 1860 to 1958. Holy shit, did that guy see the world change so much. According to him, her death was due to different circumstances. He said she'd been detained to dance and that uh, uh, Frank had just danced with her. And then Edgar Watson, clearly intoxicated, then asked to dance with her. And when Belle declined, he was pissed and he later followed her. And when she stopped to give her horse a drink at a creek on the way home, fucker shot and killed her. According to again, Frank Eaton, Watson was tried, convicted, and executed by hanging for the murder. Eaton, man, born before the Civil War, before it started, died not long before the U.S. got involved in Vietnam. That is bananas. That blows my mind. He grew up when people were heading west on the Oregon Trail in wagons said to have killed 11 men in gunfights, and then he died when Elvis Presley was a rock star on TV. Uh, Back to Bell's death. And that hoingy-boingy, Bell Gunnis, Bell Star. Another story says that there were no witnesses and that no one ever was convicted of Star's murder. Suspects with apparent motive included her new husband, Jim Star, a relative of notorious whore thief and killer Sam Star, previous husband of hers. Uh, Both of her children are possible suspects. She led a rugged life, Uh, as well as Edgar J. Watson, one of her sharecroppers because he was afraid she was going to turn him in to the authorities as an escaped murderer from Florida with a price on his head. Uh, 
Watson, who was killed in 1910, was tried for her murder, but was acquitted. And officially, the ambush of Bell Star has entered Western lore as unsolved. So all kind of accounts, and apparently uh, none of them uh, are believed by a lot of people. Uh, back to Reeves now. Going to jump ahead to 1889. After all the legal drama for killing his cook was over and done with, Wild West Bubba Fett back on the bounty trail. In 1889, the Fort Smith Court's jurisdictional land area, largest in the history of the country, was broken up. Muskogee was now selected as the location for the first court in Indian Territory. But initially, they only had jurisdiction over minor crimes, while major crimes were referred to Fort Smith. Also in 1889, in Paris, Texas, the federal court for the Eastern District of Texas was given jurisdiction for the Chickasaw Nation and most of Choctaw Nation in Indian Territory. The writing was on the wall. The need for Reeves and his peers in the area was winding down to an end. There's some evidence that Reeves may have uh, started working in Texas from time to time at this point. He'll move full-time to Texas a few years later. One tale associated with Reeves on Paris, Texas from around this time is that of Tom Story. Tom Story Gang, or the Tom Story Gang, was one of the best organized of all the horse thief gangs in Indian Territory. The Tom Story Gang had talented members like Peg Leg Jim, awesome, uh, Kinch West, who reportedly rode with William Quantrill, uh, who you might remember for our Jesse James suck, and a man listed in sources only as Long Henry. Oh, Long Henry, another expert in the fine art of stealing and disposing of horses. Also, yet another fucking outlaw porn name. So many here. Fucking Long Henry. Add him to the list. This Saturday night at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern Time on Penthouse, the premiere of Little Brothel on the Prairie, starring Sugar George, Ginger Lynn, Dick Glass, Linda Lovelace, Billy Steele, Kelly Nichols, Dick McLish, Bambi Woods, and introducing Long Henry. Back now. From 1884 until 1889, Tom and his gang were devoted exclusively to stealing horses in Indian Territory and selling them in Texas. They made their headquarters somewhere on the banks of the Red River and Chickasaw Nation, and this strategic location allowed them to move in all directions to fully cover Indian Territory in their search for horses to steal. But then in 1889, they stole horses from the ranch of George Delaney, south of the Red River in Texas, a crime not committed on Indian Territory, a crime marshals could and would pursue. The gang stole Delaney's whole damn herd. Horses, mules, drove them in Indian territory in search of a market. Delaney was quickly aware that his herd was missing. I mean, sounds like something you'd notice. And that the Tom Story gang was likely behind it. He contacted the authorities and Bass Reeves, now serving as a deputy U.S. Marshal in Paris, was given the warrant. Bass and his posse went out in search of the gang, made camp close to the Delaware Bend crossing on the Red River, deep in the brush that paralleled one of the major trails. They waited for about four days, killing time by hunting small game, doing some fishing. They got word the story was passing by and they laid a trap for him. When Story came through, with two of Delaney's prized mules in hand, Reeves stepped out of the brush and challenged him. Story dropped the lead ropes to the mules in surprise. Bass told him he had a warrant for his arrest, and as one biographer put it, right then and there, Tom Story committed suicide. More like suicide by cop. Tom tried to pull out his gun to get Reeves, but was gunned down before his weapon even cleared the leather of his holster. Reeves and Delaney buried Tom's story there along the Red River. Delaney left home, taking his two mules with him, Bass went back to Paris, Texas, and the story gang quickly disintegrated, never to be heard of again. So, dude broke up a whole gang. Following year in 1890, Reeves is now 52 years old, and he sets out to apprehend perhaps the most notorious outlaw he ever chased. A man who is the most infamous Indian outlaw in the history of Indian territory, a Cherokee man named Ned Christie. Let's meet him real quick. Ned was uh, born in Rabbit Trap, uh, a Rabbit Trap community of the Cherokee Nation, December 15th, 1852. 
He was elected to the Cherokee National Council as a legislator in 1885 uh, from the Going Snake District. Pretty sweet name for a district. Uh, Christie's father, Watt, had taught him to be a blacksmith and a gunsmith, which was his trade by profession. And on May 4th, 1887, Deputy U.S. Marshal Daniel Maples was shot by ambush and killed by whiskey peddlers in Tahlequah, the capital of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, Maples had been sent to Tahlequah from Fort Smith to curtail the liquor traffic in town. And Christie was accused of the murder, a charge he would vehemently deny for the rest of his life. Christie vowed not to be taken to Fort Smith for a crime he didn't commit, put up a five and a half year struggle against the U.S. Marshal's deputies that would come to be known as Ned Christie's War. Christie had family and friends assist him against numerous federal posses that were sent to capture him in the hills of the Cherokee Nation. Local people called the general area Ned's Fort Mountain. And Ned did end up building an actual fort in those mountains. Christie put up a valiant fight many times. He would nick and wound a lawman. Thought that he never killed any of them outright, though. In the fall of 1890, there was a $1,000 reward on his head for whoever lawman could bring him to justice, dead or alive. Bass Reeves led an assault on Christie's fortified home shortly after that reward was posted. Of the many articles and books written by the, uh, about the hunt for Ned Christie, this assault by Reeves was never mentioned until 1991. On November 27, 1890, the Vanita Indian chieftain published the following story on Reeves' raid. U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves of Fort Smith, with his posse, made an attack on the home of Ned Christie in the Flint District, and the outlaw stronghold was burned to the ground. Supposing that the owner had been killed or wounded and was consumed in the building, the news went out that he had met a violent death. But Christie had turned up to be alive and may cause trouble yet. It's said to be on the warpath, fiercer than ever, and vows revenge on the marshal and his posse. And then the paper continued, Ned Christie is perhaps the most desperate character in the territory, and there is a large reward offered on his head. He has killed a number of men, among whom might be mentioned the Squirrel Brothers, also considered rough men. He is said to be a dead shot, has eluded the officers of the law for about four years, and says he will not be taken alive. Fucking Squirrel Brothers. Couldn't find any extra information on them. Not the most intimidating outlaw names. And avoid that trail if I was you. It'll take you right to the hat out of the Squirrel Brothers. Those brothers have been nesting in trees in these here woods for years. There's a bounty on their heads. If you dead set on getting it, I'd wait till winter, when they sleep most of the day, and are a little slower on the draw. Uh, a lot of people who uh, looked into the Ned Christie story think that a lot of the claims of him being an outlaw are bullshit. That it was a conspiracy to frame him for murder. And they wanted him framed because Ch uh, Christie was one of the most vocal critics against the railroads being given access to Cherokee Nation. <clears throat> Plus, he was a member of the Kituwa Society, the most conservative element of traditional Cherokees. Kituwas believed in the maintenance of traditional ways of the Cherokee people. They felt that giving the railroads access would just allow more white people to come in and usurp Cherokee land and rights, and they weren't wrong. Standing up the railroads was a big no-no for Uncle Sam. Being against further settlement, well, that was akin to treason. Good way to get yourself killed. And Ned Christie was soon killed, uh, shot down by another posse of marshals at his mountain fort on November 2nd, 1892. What a battle this was. Christie had rebuilt the fort that Reeves had burned down. Now it was double walled with logs, had sand packed between the two walls. It was bulletproof, had gun ports for rifles, amply stocked with food, water, and ammunition so it could withstand a siege. It was formidable, but couldn't withstand a wagon load of dynamite. Christie was fatally shot as he tried to escape the burning ruins of his fort after part of it was blown up by a group of uh, about a half a dozen or so marshals and their posse men. Back to Reeves now. Not long after his failed attempt to kill Christie back in 1890, area newspapers ran stories saying that Christie had gotten his revenge on Reeves and killed him. 
Was Bass Reeves finally dead? The Muskogee Phoenix on January 29, 1891, wrote exactly that. Same day, the Eufaula Indian Journal had a similar headline. But in the article, they actually wrote that they thought that the news of Reeves' death was a mistake. On January 31st, 1891, the Van Buren Press wrote, Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves was killed yesterday by Ned Christie near uh, Tahlequah. Reeves is well known in Van Buren, having lived here for a long time. His death was not unexpected to those that knew him. It's kind of a funny way to say it. He pisses a lot of people off. Puts himself in danger a lot. Uh, but the death of Reeves was doubted by those who knew him best, his peers at the marshal's office at Fort Smith. The Muskogee Phoenix followed up with another story, February 5th, 1891, by retracting their declaration and amending the record. Bass was still alive and still working, still bringing men to justice. During the 1890s, Bass started to see more black faces as lawmen in the region. Historian Nudie Williams, who passed away in 2003, stated that during the early 1890s, Bass Reeves' police work in the Indian Territory with fellow black deputy U.S. Marshal Grant Johnson was legendary. Too bad we don't have any of those tales to share. Uh, regrettable that their exploits were not recorded or documented and that uh, persons who could speak about them are now deceased. And yeah, that historian's real name, Nudie Williams. The list grows. Billy Steele, Sugar George, Dick Glass, Dick McLish, Long Henry, and now Nudie Williams. Uh, historians speculate that Reeves was transferred officially to the Paris, Texas Marshal jurisdiction in 1893, leaving his home with three decades behind, possibly also leaving his family behind. Why Reeves left Fort Smith, not known, nor is the reason that he left his family. Uh, his wife would succumb to illness a few years later in Fort Smith. It was while serving the Texas court at Paris that Reeves patrolled the nefarious saloon towns of Potawatomi, uh, oh my gosh, Potawaya, Potawatomi County in Oklahoma Territory. Might have been where he took the only bullet uh, that we can find mentioned in stories about him. 74-year-old Charles W. Mooney, he's 74 now, uh, a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and an Oklahoma native, has published several books touched on the history of Potawatomi. Potawatomi, that is a word, county. And he claimed that in 1895, Bass worked out of the U.S. Commissioner's Court, established at Paul's Valley, Chickasaw Nation. The court was under the jurisdiction of the federal court at Paris, Texas. And Mooney's book, Dr. Jesse, which is about his father, Dr. Jesse Mooney, he stated, it was late in the summer when a messenger rode up for Dr. Jesse to go to the corner saloons on an emergency. The horseback messenger told him, Bass Reeves was shot in the leg and is calling for you. Dr. Jesse quickly saddled his horse, loaded his saddlebags of medicines and instruments and started on the 10 mile ride across the Canadian River into Oklahoma Territory. As he rode, his mind went back to when he first met Bass Reeves. It had been about eight years before at Bell Star's house in Younger's Bend, where the fearless marshal rode up. Bell told the doctor that Bass Reeves was a good friend of hers and that she trusted him. Dr. Jesse recalled at the time it was an unusual sort of friendship because Bell Star was a spy during the Civil War for the Confederacy and reported to Dr. Jesse's father. She was dedicated to the South. For Bell to have anything to do with a black man was unusual, let alone also being a friend to a deputy U.S. marshal. When the doctor arrived at one of the three corner saloons, he found Bass Reeves half standing, half sitting on a barroom table. He'd been shot in the left leg above the knee. Still lying on the floor in a pool of blood was a young gunslinger with his drawn pistol still in his hand, dead. What happened, Bass? Dr. Jesse asked. Just another young gunslinger who doubted my ability with these six guns, the marshal said. He was real fast, but like a lot of them, they couldn't shoot both fast and straight. 
these guys were fucking so much tougher than guys today. So unbelievable. Uh, the doctor soon extracted the offending bullet with his tweezer type probers, then properly medicated and bandaged the gunshot wound. Refusing the usual $3 fee, Dr. Jesse reminded the marshal of their friendship for eight years. And because both had been a friend of Bellstar, there would be no charge for his service. Before moving forward, I love that the fee for traveling to meet a guy when he'd been shot and repairing his bullet wound was three bucks. That was the equivalent looking at some old pricing charts of about 25 pounds of coffee back then, like 25 pounds of beans. No fucking way your doctor's bill today for bullet removal is going to be the equivalent of 25 pounds of what coffee costs now. The average cost per pound of coffee now is about eight bucks. Good luck getting your bullet surgery covered for about 200 bucks. And a house call at that. I mean, granted, doctors were not as good back then, but still, just another bit of info illustrating how our current healthcare situation is so financially fucked. Uh, this account of Bass Reeves getting shot conflicts with many reports of him never getting shot. At the time of Reeves' death, territorial newspapers stated that he had never been shot during his long law enforcement career. Maybe this meant he never got shot while trying to arrest someone. This could have been a random gunfight. Or maybe you can't 100% trust accounts of almost anything with all this because uh, Wild West. Jumping ahead to 1896 now. Fort Smith, Arkansas, the weekly elevator on March 27th, 1896, carried a brief report that stated, Mr. Bass Reeves, uh, Mrs., excuse me, Mrs. Bass Reeves died at her home in this city last Friday night. She was about 40 years old. Eh, she was actually 56, but uh, you know, whatever. They almost got it right. Only off by 16 years. Maybe she looked really young. Uh, the cause of Jenny's death was peritonitis resulting from cancer. The duration of her illness was about two years. Another personal loss also occurred for Reeves in 1896. Judge Isaac C. Parker, perhaps Reeves' uh, greatest ally, died November 17th, right, of this year, uh, age 58 after battling with an illness for several months. Bass Reeves' great nephew, retired federal judge Paul L. Brady, described Reeves and Parker's relationship. They developed a very close working relationship in spite of the widely diverse backgrounds. One a slave, one a former congressman, one educated, one who was not. Bass had no semblance of any formal education. They developed a very deep respect for each other. I think that perhaps this was based upon their overriding sense of duty and responsibility that they had learned earlier in their lives. Perhaps with some Christian backgrounds and some Christian teachings, because both were very versed in the scriptures from their early learning, he convinced Bass to join him in helping to establish the rule of law over the rule of men and to bring law where there had never been any law before. He reminded Bass that he would be in a position to serve as a deputy to show the lawful as well as the lawless that a black man was the equal of any other law enforcement officer on the frontier. Well, hail Judge Isaac Parker, ahead of his time and place when it came to race, uh, race relations. Nimrod is pleased. Uh, more 1896 info. 1896, uh, not the best year for Reeves. Sadly, many Americans were not nearly as interested in racial equality as Judge Parker. Bass would be deeply hurt by an 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. The case evolved from an incident that occurred in Louisiana, June of 1892. A 30-year-old shoemaker named Homer Plessy was jailed for sitting in the, quote, white car of the East Louisiana Railroad. It was said that Plessy was one-eighth black and seven-eighths white, but under Louisiana law, still considered an African-American, therefore required to sit in the, quote, colored car. Plessy went to court in Louisiana over this and lost his case. He next appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that the precedent that separated facilities for blacks and whites were constitutional as long as the facilities were, quote, equal. The decision by the Supreme Court was quickly extended to cover many areas of public life, such as restaurants, theaters, restrooms, public schools, 
Although this decision didn't immediately impact Indian territory, Bass Reeves felt he had been betrayed by the U.S. government. Yeah, I bet he did. He'd been good enough to arrest criminals for America for many years now, but still not seen as good enough to use the same bathroom as his fellow white deputy marshals. Not seen as good enough to go to the same restaurant or watch the same show at the theater. Reeves would now stand toward the rear at crowd gatherings, not be nearly as vocal as he had been in the past in public. Uh, During the late 1890s, Bass in his late 50s now would spend less time in the saddle, more time in a one-horse carriage or walking a beat. Also by the late 1890s, the white population of the area, steadily heading towards uh, Oklahoma statehood, had grown to more than 200,000 from a total of 60,000 in the Indian, Indian Territory in 1875. On March 3rd, 1893, Congress passed legislation authorizing negotiations with the Indians to the enrollment and allotment of their lands. Henry L. Dawes from Massachusetts was the chairman of this initiative, which became known as the the Dawes Commission. Indians and freed men were given land allotments after enrolling, usually 160 acres. Some received more, some less. After all the allotments were given, the Indian Territory was open for settlement by U.S. citizens. This would bring about the end of the sovereign nations of the Indian Territory and hasten Oklahoma statehood, which would be finalized in 1907. The end of the era for lawmen like Reeves doing things the way they had done them was coming quick. January 18th, 1900, Bass married Winnie J. Sumner, a previously wedded Cherokee freed woman originally from Tahlequah in the Cherokee Nation. Also around this time, the Muscogee Phoenix started to write some pieces on Reeves. And one, they talked about his over 3,000 arrests and discussed a dozen kills on the job. And Bass still wasn't done. Bass Reeves was reappointed Deputy U.S. Marshal for the Northern District of Indian Territory, effective January 10th, 1902. An appointment sent by U.S. Marshal Leo E. Bennett to the U.S. Attorney General in Washington, D.C. on March 17th. Uh, Showed Reeves and John L. Brown as the two most senior men in the district with 20 years service or more. And that would be the year that perhaps his toughest case came about. Reeves would be tasked with arresting his own son for murder. Reeves' son, Benjamin, Benny to his dad, worked as a barber in Muskogee. And one day came home to find his wife, Cassie, in bed with another man. Sources don't say who this guy was. Hopefully not Billy Steele, Sugar George, Dick Glass, Dick McLish, or Long Henry. Benny, less inclined to violence than his famous father, forgave them. Over glasses of whiskey, he later asked Bass what he would have done. And without hesitation, the tough old lawman replied, I'd have shot the man and whipped the living God out of her. <laughs> Yeek. Oh, okay. Some serious 1902 old man getting tossed about there. Uh, it's clearly a very different time. Apparently, the advice left a bit of an impression on Benny, and he would soon get his chance to take it. Soon thereafter, he found his wayward wife with yet another man, and he beat the man senseless and then shot his wife to death. Holy shit. Not in the forgiving mood this time around. Benny then immediately went on the dodge, as it was called into the nations, as word of murder of the murder spread throughout the city. Marshal Leo Bennett, Bass's boss, was reluctant to give the warrant, but none of the, uh, n- none of the other officers wanted the job to bring in Bass's son. And when Reeves insisted, he handed the assignment over to him. According to legend, and to Benny's sister Alice, Bass gathered his gear, saddled up, set off in hard pursuit of his son. Two weeks later, after an arduous trek to the Oklahoma Hills, he returned with Benny in tow. Maybe. An article in the June 8th, 1902 issue of the Muskogee Daily Phoenix states that Benny surrendered to his dad immediately after the slain. Benny was obliged to fill out a prisoner's agreement after his arrest. And in response to the query, where and by whom were you arrested, Benny wrote, Muskogee by Bass Reeves, my father, who was deputy marshal. Whichever way it went down, biographers agreed that the incident took a severe toll on the deputy, now 64 years old, both emotionally and physically. I can't imagine, can't imagine arresting my own son and for murder, no less, bringing him in. Benny was tried, convicted, sentenced to life in Leavenworth Federal Prison. Bass stood by his son throughout the trial and then would visit him in reg- uh, regularly in jail. 
After nearly a dozen years behind bars, Benny's sentence would be commuted, whereupon he would return to Muskogee and live out the rest of his life in peace. But his dad would not live to see that. After the older Reeves uh, died, the incident would be referenced in his obituary when the Muskogee Daily Phoenix wrote of his devotion to duty equaling that of the old Roman Brutus, whose greatest claim on fame has been that the love for his son could not sway him from justice. On November 16, 1907, the Indian Territory became Oklahoma, the 46th U.S. state. Days later, on November 20, 1907, Bass Reeves' legendary career as a U.S. Marshal ended when the new state of Oklahoma assumed policing duties over Indian Territory. At the age of 69, Reeves still not done as a lawman. Now he became a policeman for the city of Muskogee. Worked there for two years, shaking shit up, according to legend, uh, dropping crime rates in Muskogee before failing health forced his retirement. And then just months after he retired, Bass Reeves died, January 10th, 1910, in Muskogee, Oklahoma, of Bright's disease, a kidney disease, also called chronic or acute nephritis. He was 71. And that will take us out of our time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Bass motherfucking Reeves. What a legend. If half of the stories about this guy are true, you know, then he was a real-life uh, gunslinger on par with Hollywood gunslingers like Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name from some of those Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. And he might have done even crazier shit than what we went over. God knows what has been lost to history. How many insane gunfights and wild tales of tracking down and arresting outlaws, you know, are just uh, ones we'll never know about. At least we know some of the story. And more and more people are learning about what's known about Bass Reeves in recent years. Uh, Bass's legend has been on a long overdue path of rediscovery recently. 2011, the US-62 bridge, which spans the Arkansas River between Muskogee and Fort Gibson, Oklahoma, was renamed the Bass Reeves Memorial Bridge. In May of 2012, a bronze statue of Reeves by Oklahoma sculptor Harold Holden was erected in Pentagraph Park in Fort Smith, Arkansas. 2013, he was inducted into the Texas Hall of Fame. Excuse me, Texas Trail of Fame. Put a little twist on it there. Uh, He's also been featured in a number of TV shows, documentaries, movies, video games, and comic books in recent years. There was a Bass Reeves character in the 2021 Netflix Western, The Harder They Fall. I fucking, I I love that movie. Uh, Delroy Lindo played Bass. Fantastic working actor. Uh, He's been on the screen since 1975. Uh, If you don't recognize the name, you'll see him like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that guy. I love that guy. Uh, Play was created to honor Bass in 2019. In an episode of Drunk History, uh, Comedy Central, it was Steve Urkel. Uh, Jaleel White, who comedically played Reeves. And in the recent Watchmen series, the character Will Reeves, based heavily on Bass. Also currently rumored that Morgan Freeman uh, either was or is still in the process of making a miniseries based on Art Burton's 2006 book about Reeves. And a new Bass Reeves show, this has just been announced, is coming to Paramount Plus, part of Taylor Sheridan's expanding Yellowstone universe of awesome Western series. Currently slated to be titled 1883, The Bass Reeves Story a limited series starring Emmy-nominated David Oyelowo as Reeves, another who uh, actor who's been in a ton of shit, a very highly decorated British actor. I look forward to watching it when it comes out. I love those Yellowstone shows. And totally random, Bass's great-great-great-grandson is NHL player Ryan Reeves. Ryan's long been one of the NHL's uh, best enforcers. I bet Bass will be proud of that distinction. Uh, Ryan's a badass, you know, just like Bass Reeves was. Maybe not quite as much of a badass as Reeves was. Hard to live up to that legend. Everything about Reeves was legendary, right? He was a big man for his day with uncommon strength. He was 180 pounds, you guys. I still love that. He was a master of firearms and an elite horseman. 
He was so good at disguises and detective work that he was recently thought to be the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. While most of the records on Reeves have been lost, destroyed, or never kept, there's clearly still plenty to show he belongs in the pantheon of America's Wild West heroes. One lengthy and glowing obituary for this universally respected man described him as absolutely fearless and knowing no master but duty. And again, that sounds like some shit Sam Elliott would be saying in a fucking badass awesome western. Bass Reeves was absolutely fearless, knew no master but duty. His hard-earned reputation carried him above his peers and how the men who feared him viewed race. In the Wild West, there was so much to be feared. Rattlesnakes, bears, infection, starvation, drought, disease, probably not LSD, definitely bandits and outlaws. But if you were a wanted outlaw, you weren't scared of nothing as much as you were scared of a bullet from Bass Reeves. He knew that one day or another, his gun would find you. And if you forced him to pull that trigger, his aim would be true. What an interesting life, man. Uh, glad I got to uh, go over it and share what I know of it with you today. So yip yip yah, motherfuckers. Let's head on over now to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Reeves was the first or one of the first black marshals in the West. He is likely not as well known as his white counterparts simply because he was black, as were perhaps 25% or a little more of all cowboys. Still surprised by that number. Number two, Reeves' dedication to the law was uncanny. While there are stories that he would occasionally let an outlaw go after maybe losing a bet in a horse race, maybe finding a better bounty to pursue, he was so devoted to justice that he even tracked, arrested, and brought his own son in for murder charges. Number three, Reeves was such a badass that the 21st century theory of him being the inspiration for the Lone Ranger is now the first thing you see when you Google him. I don't think he was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, but he was the only real-life marshal in the West who could compare to the superhuman feats of that fictional masked man. Number four, Reeves reportedly brought in over 3,000 criminals. 3,000 men, most of them tracked all over Indian territory before being brought in, and he killed maybe 14 to 20 of them, including his own cook. Number five, new info. As you mentioned, there were actually lots of black cowboys. Uh, these include men like Bose Icard, who is inspiration for the character of Dietz in the novel Lonesome Dove, and John Ware and, John Ware and Bill Pickett, who were big audience favorites in some of the popular Wild West shows. Another black cowboy to note is Nat Love, born in 1854. Nat Love was a former slave who went on to become one of the most prominent black men of the West. Love grew up in Tennessee, where he learned how to read and discovered that he really had a gift with horses. He traveled to Dodge City uh, where, uh, when he was a teenager, found cowboy work on cattle drives, came a crack shot out on the trail, earned his original nickname of Red River Dick. Of course, yet another dick in the story. Later found himself in Deadwood where he won a rodeo competition, which earned him a new nickname, Deadwood Dick, for fuck's sake. Billy Steele, Sugar George, Dick Glass, Dick McLish, Long Henry, Nudie Williams, and introducing Deadwood Dick. According to his 1907 autobiography, his life read like a John Wayne movie. Perhaps Deadwood Dick will be a suck for another time. We'll see how the spaces are to vote. That's all for now. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Bass Reeves on acid. Tripping in the Wild West has been sucked. Uh, now for some thanks. I had a little note originally. I was like, oh, I just wrote it myself in my notes. Talk, talk about how I feel on acid right now. Well, luckily I'm not... Uh, <laughs> I didn't make it close to that note. I had a lot of confidence that I'd be able to pull off the entire episode. Again, I'll talk about it at the very end, a little bit about uh, how the trip went. Uh, first, some thanks. Thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team. 
Thanks to Queen of Magic or Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, I got babysitting me for a lot of hours yesterday. Uh, thanks to Reverend Doctor Joe Paisley for production and for such a peaceful, calming energy. He really does. I've been there. You could be a, you could be a LSD shaman. You could guide <laughs> people. You could guide people through their trips. Take, take them on their trips. Follow me. <laughs> <laughs> I picture you in like a weird psychedelic robe. Uh, thanks to uh, Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. Logan, the Art Warlock, Keith creating the merch at BadMagicMerch.com. And for running socials with Liz, the Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks to the old script keeper, Zach Flannery, for the initial research this week. It was completed a long time ago. Bass has uh, been on deck for a while. Also, thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Becky, Jesse, the Mod Squad, Reverend Dr. Joe, making sure Discord keeps running smooth. Also seeing more people in uh, uh, Reddit on the Time Suck subreddit. Uh, next week, the Spacers have chosen the DC Sniper Attacks for our sucking pleasure. D.C. snipers terrorized residents of Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland for three weeks in October of 2002, coming up on exactly two decades ago. For three weeks, D.C. residents and people traveling through lived in constant fear that they would be killed while only doing, uh, you know, while doing daily activities like pumping gas, waiting for the bus, maybe just walking across a parking lot. In total, 10 people would be murdered, three critically injured. Hundreds of FBI agents and local police officers worked the case. They were desperate to catch the man who had been dubbed the DC sniper or the Beltway sniper, and they had no idea how wrong their initial initial sniper profile was. When it was all over, 41-year-old John Muhammad and 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo would be arrested. The authorities now had to unravel the strange father-son relationship between John and Lee and uncover their motive for the shootings. John Muhammad trained Lee Malvo into becoming his own personal soldier. Lee became a killing machine who wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger on any target that John ordered him to shoot. How did that happen? And why did John want anyone to kill for him? Why did he want to kill anybody? Next week, we discuss John and Lee's lives before they became intertwined, their very strange relationship, and the 22 days of terror they unleashed around the D.C. area. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update, a Rajneeshi update. Marvelous meat sack, Marshall, visited the antelope compound, or what was left of it, uh, and reports, hey there, suck master comrade. Long time listener, first time caller. Just gonna say I was beyond stoked when I saw this topic pop up Monday. I live in Bend, Oregon, so antelope isn't far from where I live. Well, And I have a great story for you. I'm a field technician for a testing company. We test anything that goes into construction from dirt to concrete and asphalt. Well, a few years ago, not long after I started, I got a dispatch for Washington, for Washington Family Ranch, and it was an early one. I had to be there 5 a.m. on a Friday on Halloween. When my dispatcher handed it to me, she uh, says, have fun. That place is creepy. I looked up Washington Family Ranch, and the first thing that pops up, cult, cult, cult. Totally forgot about the Rajneesh. So I was pretty excited to go check this place out. About an hour drive to Antelope, about an 18-mile drive down a super steep, curvy dirt road to the compound. Once I got there, everything that could go wrong with the concrete pour went wrong. Frozen water, frozen batch plant, frozen concrete trucks, by God. But that gave the foreman of the job time to show me the compound. Talk about some heavy, heavy energy down there. All of the Queen of the Sucks crystals couldn't take out the energy there. Sheila's house is still there, along with the orgy house with the creepy dungeon. Most of all the other buildings have been torn down, new buildings put up. The A-frame houses way down the road where they quarantined people who got STDs are still there. All the construction workers stay, uh, stay down there in what's left of the old buildings, and wow, they had some creepy stories. 
I can see why they chose that spot for a cult compound. It's isolated as hell, but really pretty. The best part, though, is that if you even mention the Rajneesh cult to any of the young life people that live there or they're based there now, they get really pissy. Like they're trying to forget what happened. Uh, also, almost got stuck out there. My truck started overheating as I was leaving. There is no cell service between the ranch and Antelope. And uh, as far as Antelope uh, itself, it has about 24 people living there. Probably the same 24 that stuck through all that. Sadly, they still have to drive 75 miles any direction to get bacon because the cafe is closed down along with every else, uh, everything else in town besides the post office. God, that is sad. Sorry, not sorry for the long email, but I also want to shout out my friend Matt who got me into time suck by wandering around at work talking about stroking a soft shame cock. And Walter's big deal. Love everything you do. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Marshall uh, Bedouin. P.S. Good luck with my last name. LOL. Well, thank you, Marshall. Uh, I probably did get it wrong. Uh, Bodwin, Bodwin, who knows? Uh, did not know about the orgy room or the STD cabins. Uh, that tracks though. God, what a place to get to explore. I feel bad that those uh, poor bastards in Antelope also, yeah, lost their only cafe. And thanks, Matt, for letting Marshall know about the suck. Hail Nimrod to you both. Now, blast from the time suck past. Uh, from scared sucker Michael Simons. I got that son of a bitch. He writes, You motherfucker. <laughs> I'm currently binging Time Suck after catching uh, all the STD, STDs. Uh, scared of this. Yeah, I've uh, successfully dodged all of your misleads until episode 102. The Roanoke Brown Recluse Spider sounded so goddamn plausible, and your description of it was so goddamn nightmarish that I had to learn more. As I stared at an existing brown re- brown recluse, wondering how heinous that death it would be uh, to be mauled by these monsters, you dropped the reveal. But this image had already nested in my hollow skull and I could feel them burrowing through my skull. And they just keep whispering, what this big deal? Brown recluse Chikatilo Spiler just wants to wrestle. Ignore my soft shame jaws. Motherfucker, you just brought it up again. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, it's been a while since I dropped a new nightmare bug into the suck. That's still my favorite one. Uh, maybe. There, there is a certain ant. I don't know if you've uh, gotten that far yet. I can't remember where the ant is exactly. That I also like to uh, think about people believing in. Carefully, you don't find yourself uh, near the wrong anthill. Those fuckers... They will literally chew your head off. Hail Nimrod, and I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the suck, and I hope I get you again later. Sweet Sucker Dakota now has a request. She writes, I don't know if this would be the place to do it, but I wanted to try and see if this could be one of the notes for a show. My boyfriend, John Daniel, and I first bonded over our love of time suck, and we listened to them together. He's been listening for a lot longer than me, but looks up to Dan a whole lot. He's one of his heroes. Oh, boy. Uh, he actually is from Johnson City, Tennessee, home of the Johnson City Tittle Whisper Dragon. And I got him that t-shirt for his birthday. His 18th birthday is going to be on June 9th. I think it would mean a lot for him to get wished a happy birthday from someone he idolizes a lot around that time. If so, thank you so, so much. Well, that is very sweet, Dakota. Happy belated birthday, young John Daniel, 18 years old. And you got a girl who cares about you enough to write this uh, message in? Well, you're already fucking winning. And you have so much life ahead of you. Go get it. Possibilities are so vast at 18. The possible life paths, nearly endless. That can be scary as fuck, you know, it can be a little overwhelming, but also exciting. Focus on the exciting part. Let it be magical. You know, let all your dreams live right now. They all have legs. They all have potential. Unless you want to be an Olympic gymnast or a child actor. Those are probably gone, but you get it. Uh, Now go run, young buck. Go fucking get it. Uh, One more from Awesome Sack Andy, but not really Andy. (laughs) <laughs> not Andy writes Sir Suckalot, the suck master, the significant one. Hail Nimrod. Been listening to your sucks now for some time. I'm listening in from Egypt, actually. 
I used to be a very conservative Muslim for most of my life, but became agnostic in 2020 at the age of 18 after seeing the damage that my dogmatic beliefs had done to me. It's great listening to your podcast because I can see there are others out there who have an open mind, even if nobody in my immediate circle is like that. Love your weird, raunchy sense of humor. I got the same kind of crazy humor that makes you feel that you got some screws loose sometimes. Hail Lucifina. Just wanted to thank you for doing everything you do, you beautiful bastard. You magnificent little meat sack. Keep on sucking. Your top sucker from Egypt. Andy. P.S. Not really Andy. Just wanted to keep it anonymous. Wait a minute, Andy. Are you telling me that the odds are low of a conservative former Muslim living in Egypt being named Andy Smith, actually, based on the email form? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did think that was odd. When I first started, I'm like, Andy Smith? Mm. Uh, So glad you found a new tribe. The fits you more. So glad you're having fun with the cult of curious. Uh, I relate, you know, a bit. I growing up in the tiny town I did, I often felt very alone with my ideas, my beliefs. Felt like no one understood my beliefs, how I saw the world. Uh, there's a lot wrong with the the internet, but a lot right too. Sometimes it connects people in the worst of ways. See, QAnon, flatter society, etc. Sometimes though, it connects people in the best of ways. Like uh, like right here, right in this little cult of curious we got, this island of misfit toys. I love that it makes you and many others feel less alone. You probably do have a screw loose too. You know, if you enjoy this show, and like this humor, yeah, you're probably a fucking weirdo. But probably the same uh, loose screw that I've got. I love it. World's a big place. And while there may not be anybody uh, close to you right now, uh, there are so many people similar to you all over the world. I hope you find more of your tribe out there. So hail Nimrod and hail uh, not Andy Smith. Thanks everybody for the messages. Thanks time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast in the bag. Took, took two tries, but we got to meet sex. 300. So many stories, so many jokes. Hope you've enjoyed the ride thus far. Uh, hope we can keep it going for a long time. Uh, maybe don't hop onto a horse and ride off into the desert trying to collect some bounties this week. Shit doesn't really work that way anymore, and you're probably not cut out for it. You won't bring enough water. Your food's going to spoil. You're going to get lost. Stay the fuck home and keep on sucking. And I'll talk about acid in just a second. Bad Magic Productions. Woo wee! Okay, so especially if you watched on YouTube and you saw where it cut after me having no shirt and I had to jump back in here. Here's what. <laughs> here's what happened. Why I couldn't continue the show with a little more uh, detail. I was having trouble. Okay, in my experience, and I've only done it a few times, but in my experience as it's like the visual hallucinations are very harsh, very, they can be very severe. And I remember having trouble before, it's been a long time, but with screens, like, wow, my eyes, you're, yeah, it messes with the part of your brain that's like how you interpret stimuli and just like connects to little, like, I can't think of all the terminology right now, like, but like sensory things that like, yeah, it, it truly does just like, you're not seeing things correctly at all. And with like screens, I use a teleprompter uh, just to be more conversational with the notes. And it went from when I was doing the Whipple, the Wild West Whipple commercial, that's when shit took a hard bend. And uh, Joe talked about before, like seeing my eyes change when like the music kicked in because you're you, you're perceiving music, you know, auditory hallucinations too. And it, it felt like I was in the Wild West. And like each sentence I would read, it felt like it got highlighted in a weird way on the screen. And then I was like visualizing what I was talking about. So I'm just like picturing like horses around. Like I thought I was in a fucking spaghetti Western. And um, 
And it just, I was like, oh man, this is like, it just took so much concentration to, to just read notes and to say these lines. So that's where things got, I was like, oh man, things are really, really rough. Tried to go a little further. Um, took a little break, I believe. Did I take a little break right after the Whipple commercial, Joe? Yeah. Right around there. I'm trying to, yeah. Cause then you, you didn't end right at the Whipple one. No. We, you just got up, came out here. I think you went for a little walk or oh, tried yeah. to. Oh yeah. That was, I think, I think that was, was I, it, did you, we did didn't you just leave yet. right after that or did you walk and then try to come back and record more? I think I went and grabbed water somewhere around there. I came out, I drank some more water. I was, uh, felt like, felt like I was too hot, sat back down, read a tiny bit more, and then just had that pause that uh, people on video will see on YouTube before we cut to this. Where I was just like, oh, I can't, like, sorry. And then after that, you wanted me to go outside just to, like, you know, uh, get to see the grass. And so Lindsay walked me outside and just kind of looking at and the grass felt good. It was a little bit much. I was like, oh, no, it's, like, really coming, like, too much stimuli. And then I saw Doug, our friend here in the building, and, and he knew what I was doing. So he's like, hey, Dan, how you doing? And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed with, like, somebody trying to talk to me and be like, oh, not great. Things are getting weird. And then I and then I felt like I was too much to be outside. Everything was starting to move and undulate in weird ways. We came back in. I was going to try and regroup because you were like, oh, maybe if you can just, because you guys were like, I couldn't tell if I was making sense or not. And you guys were like, actually, the narrative is still holding. Yeah, you're right. You were still, it was still progressing. Yeah. Yeah. It could still kind of make sense. Your reality was not our reality. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, what I was saying was making more sense than I thought it was. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can go back in. And then above Lindsay's desk, there's some drawing a fan sent in of these little creatures and they're it's just a still image and holy shit. It was like, it was like a fucking animated. It was like a little on the paper. It was like a cartoon. Those things were fucking walking and moving. And one thing in the back was like throwing things. And I remember, I think I asked you guys, I'm like, is that moving? Yeah. You asked and we were like, nope. Nope. And then he said, and it's not talking to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, nope. And that was when me and Lindsay locked eyes. We're like, we got to get him home. Yeah, like it's, we got to get Dan to a to a safe place. Oh my gosh! And then just like you know, and we're going to talk about this more on the secret suck, in in depth. But just the the quick Cliff Notes version. So Lindsay brought me home, <laughs> and you know, with acid, like it can the peak doesn't come for around four or five hours. So when I left the studio, I was about an hour and a half in, maybe hour forty five minutes in. So we got home. Luckily, it was a sunny day. Like sunshine always feels everything like bright and just positive, like nature wise, peaceful feels good. Anything that even hints at darkness is fucking overwhelming. And uh, it was way stronger than I thought it was going to be the the double two double doses. So four do- it was it was too, too much. I should have just went half of that, but whatever. And then I, w- I was home and then I was just trying to find a safe spot at home. But I remember. God, it was getting weird. Like I went down, Lindsay was like the best caretaker. I just like went and laid in bed, but you can't like, I, I felt like I was melting into everything. So it's hard to get comfortable. I kept getting too hot. And then I like, I like, I was felt like I was going to melt into the bed. Like I was almost worried for my safety. Like I was going to like be absorbed by the bed. It, it feels so real, makes no sense. And then like, I kept trying to go outside and we'd be in the backyard. And then I was so paranoid. I was just picturing the neighbors being like, that fucking weird druggie. Look at that piece of shit out there in his yard. And then I was just like, I would feel okay. I would lay down. We had some music going, look at the sky. But then sometimes the sky got too overwhelming. Like I was that high. And it was just um, going down to the basement. I had playlists. I would like lay on the couch and like listen to these uh, LSD peaceful playlists. 
But then like sometimes that would get too much. And I just kept having to like move around. And then, oh my gosh, a couple hours in, I kept having to go to the bathroom. And I, at one point I was worried that I wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom on my own. I didn't even tell Lindsay this yet, but I was like, I would just try to pee into a toilet, but I couldn't, the toilet was so tiny, like it shrunk. And then I ended up just peeing, <laughs> I would end up just peeing on the floor. And then I'm trying to like clean the floor. And then I would feel like I had to go, you know, like another kind of bathroom, right? I have to go poop or something. So then I would like sit down and then I'd like, I could, I couldn't even figure out if I could wipe my own ass. And then I remember one time I didn't even tell it. I just like took everything I was wearing, like threw it into the corner. Cause I was worried about peeing on my own clothes and just trying to clean myself. <laughs> I washed my hands so much, trying not to look at myself in the mirror. Like everything was fucking bending and warping so hard. Anything that had little people on images, like they were like moving around. Holy shit. The visual hallucinations were hard. So, I mean, I dropped acid yesterday at 1.30 in the afternoon. I was fucking high until 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> like, I would say by eight o'clock, it was manageable. From one, from four to eight, I was, it was like I was on another planet. It was, I, I was not, fucking sane like I, I might as well have been in an asylum i couldn't communicate properly my emotions were all over the place i would get so sad and then so happy truly truly a space cowboy <laughs> truly a space cowboy <laughs> and when people get to watch this episode yeah the transformation from where you started to where we had to take a break visually <laughs> kill, i had to go i was going back and editing it it was killing me <laughs> i was lost it i couldn't even i almost couldn't finish editing it without crying Oh my God. When you showed me the picture when I came in where I said like, what I say? Like, oh shoot, I can't. Well, you know, you said, you said, I can't read. And then you tried one more time. Yeah. And then you just went, ah, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and then stood up and just walked off. Just got out of there. And I think that time I had no shirt on. Yeah, and no had, shirt on. And cowboy my, <laughs> hat. Eyes were just my as pupils. wide as they could possibly be. And you just go, ah, shoot. It's like my whole eye was pupil. And uh, I looked so insane. I was, I was thinking about like, if I... <laughs> Like if I committed any crazy type crime, they would just have to show the jury that picture. They'd be like, oh, fuck, he fucking did it. Look, he's not, look at him. He's killed, not killed a whole bus full of kids. Yeah, look There's at him. There's no way. And he's like, exhibit A. Yep. All right. He guilty. Guilty. <laughs> that guy's capable of anything. Oh, but, um, but it was so, it was so fun. It, it is a, it is a, a drug you don't want to, you don't want to take lightly. I'm, I'm glad, you know, I would have, I had Lindsay to watch me. If you're listening to this and thinking about doing it, man, you got to have somebody there with you. You got to have a somebody to make sure you're safe. There's, a, I feel like there's a lot of urban legends. I mean, it can, if, you, if you're under the age of 35, there's you know a small chance, maybe a tiny chance over the age of 35 that it could like um, activate like underlying mental health conditions like schizophrenia, pretty low odds. Most of that is urban legend stuff. The real danger is that you just don't understand reality. Like, uh, you know, you could hurt yourself kind of thing, you know, just not understanding what's around you. I, I do remember, <laughs> luckily I was, ne I was never so messed up. I was worried about that. But I remember like I went to the bathroom and then we light candles. So nobody has to smell bathroom stuff. And I remember like looking at the little torch and just having a thought of like, you shouldn't touch that. You got to stay away from fire right now. Is my skin real? <laughs> <laughs> Only one way for me to find out. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. Um, by the end. And then so random as I was coming down, but while I still was high for several hours, I couldn't process much of anything. But Lindsay's like, we never watch comedies that often. And she's like, let's watch Ted Lasso. And I watched the first three episodes of Ted Lasso and I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> it is a good show. It is a really good show. <laughs> it was so happy. And I loved his character so much. Jason Sudeikis, I was like, oh, he's so sweet. He's such a nice guy. Why don't people love him? 
remember, but, I remember sharp things being squishy. Did you ever have to ooh. run into that? Like the corner of a table or like any sort of like just sharp angle. I could push it in. No way. Oh, that no. Was, I didn't have that, that tactile. Wild. Yeah. Luckily, I wasn't around a bunch of knives because I probably would have tried to be like, can I push ooh. this too? Yeah. Um, my thing, one of the weird things that was uh, the creepiest was, I don't know what they would call it. I'm sure on some forums I could find the terminology, but I would call it like imprinting where like, uh, a pattern you've seen somewhere else gets put overlaid on like, maybe like the person you're talking to. Yep. All those wiggly layers. Yeah. Like yeah. when I was talking to Lindsay for a while, it was freaking me out. It looked like she was decomposing. Oh, that's fun. It was fucking terrifying. <laughs> that was like in the midst of it. And I was like, this is fucking. And then I got in a weird death cycle where everything, like if I looked at flowers, they would wilt. Um, <laughs> it was so fucking terrifying. That's not, well, for the most part, would you say it was 90, 10, good, bad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say okay. 90, 10, 80, 20, you know, uh, good, bad. Um, cause then later it was so cool. Like before I went to bed last night, we had these little flowers. Uh, I don't even know what they're called. Uh, shit. Doesn't matter. But these flowers on our, on our table and they, they look, uh, they remind me of sea anemones. Those, those are things that undulate. And I would look at those and they would just kind of like, like, uh, vibrate and like, like everything plants, it looked like they were just so alive. And then these trees in the backyard, holy shit. My eyes still are not processing color the same way. Like if I went out and looked at a tree right now, it would be twice as beautiful as I would normally think it was. I think we've talked about that with shrooms. It changed my life. Me being yeah. colorblind. Oh, so all the colors are super dull months and months after doing it. Green was so much brighter wow. than it ever was uh, prior to doing mushrooms. That's great, man. The psychedelics. What a fucking crazy, crazy classification of drugs. And I do think about, and I didn't look into this, so this is not a research part. This is just me talking. But like, uh, you know, LSD comes from, well, they, I mean, they found it like uh, from like ergot poisoning. It's like this, like in medieval times, people would trip on LSD. They just wouldn't know they were taking it. They would just get this ergot poisoning. And it's like this fungus that would grow on um, like rye and wheat and stuff, like a version of LSD, like not as pure, but... But people would eat this and like, so like if the town, if a village is like store of, you know, wheat, rye, barley, whatever like that, got this fungus in it, there were certain cases where basically the whole town for like a week, they just wouldn't know what was happening. All of them fucking tripping balls. That is so wild. If you've done this to think about like how a whole village, a whole this? village and nobody knowing why <laughs> is this real? I don't, and no one knows what's real. <laughs> Oh my that's god! A, that's a fuck. That's a comedy. Yeah, That'd be a great show. Could be a- <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> uh, so wild times. It was. Uh, it was fun to do. And um, thanks everybody for for listening. And who knows what'll happen for four hundred? We'll see. Hopefully we'll. Uh, hopefully we we'll get a couple more uh, hundreds in there. I did see. Yeah. Wait until four twenty, and then just getting super baked. Hmm. Yeah, like, I haven't done a baked one. That's true. No, haven't done that. You'd be able to get through that one. True. But I mean, obviously, not as hardcore as dropping four tabs of LSD. But <laughs> that might be a better I, I show. I see that. I was like, okay, I kind of like that. I like that actually. That, that'd, that'd be a better show. That would be good because I thought about Molly, but I don't know if that would translate to an episode. Um, you'd love doing it, <laughs> right? You'd be right. pumped about it. Be pumped. Be super excited, especially if it was like a happy topic. Wishing you had someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. Just, <laughs> just I'd, I'd be a lot of like for the people watching, a lot of rubbing the desk, just like really, just kind of probably rubbing myself. Oh, it was so hard. I also wanted to like leave yesterday. I kept wanting <laughs> when I had my shirt off. I kept wanting to rub my nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I saw it. I saw those hands <laughs> creeping up there. 
I was like, oh, he's doing it. Oh, my God. What was that? that was the first telltale sign of someone who's on LSD. Yeah. Was nibble rubbing. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, like in public? Huh? Like, oh, don't rub your nipples. Don't rub your nipples. Everyone's going to know. Everyone knows the what you're doing. The cops will know if you start squeezing those nips. <laughs> anyway, glad you're back. Oh, uh, thank you, Joe. Bye. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.